Last night, wrestling's biggest doubleheader saw the change of the guard as the Macho Man Randy Savage became the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion, defeating, upsetting the Nature Boy Ric Flair. But the win had a lot of controversy as he and Hulk Hogan had some words immediately after the matchup last night. I got something to say right straight to your eyes, brother. You're celebrating this match like you want it. Hey! Wanted! I am the WCW World Heavyweight Champion! You understand that? And then later on in the same telecast on Monday Nitro on TNT, another change in the guard. Lex Luger and Sting became the world champions, and that was marred in controversy. Lex Luger obviously used something to help win the World Heavyweight title, but Luger and Sting go into the Knights Clash of the Champions as the new Tag Team Champions of the World. Lex Luger and Sting celebrating. Sting was not so sure about all of that. Of course, later on in the telecast, Luger and Sting celebrated. The Giant wanted to get involved. Ric Flair did not, but Flying Brian once again went crazy. And that leads to a very hot clash. Tonight, in this evening of main events, the Dungeon of Doom and the Four Horsemen join forces as Ric Flair and the Giant battle against Macho Man Randy Savage and the immortal Hulk Hogan. They have already made their mark. They are public enemy. They'll meet the Nasty Boys. The Mexican heavyweight title is on the line. Conan takes on the wild and unpredictable psychosis. Tagging up our Sting and Lex Luger versus the Blue Bloods, plus a match made in heaven. You are invited to attend the wedding of Sherry and the Colonel. Tonight, live from Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, World Championship Wrestling and TBS present Clash of the Champions. We come to you from the entertainment capital of the world, a capacity crowd as always. But where the big boys play, it's time for TBS and World Championship Wrestling together for the Clash of the Champions. Excitement reigns. And among other things, here in Las Vegas, Tony Schiavone, along with Bobby the Brain Heenan. You saw at the top of the program, yes. The Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan are together. The Macho Man, the new world heavyweight champion against Ric Flair and the Giant, but there is controversy there. And what about some surprises they have? Well, you know, Hogan and Savage are talking about their secret weapon. Get on the phone right now and call everyone you know, because you know what their secret weapon is? Miss Elizabeth is back in the corner. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 Years of Nitro, our week-by-week -week breakdown of WCW's flagship show where each episode is reviewed on the 20th anniversary of its airing. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, as always, are my broadcast colleagues, the Road Warriors. Road Warrior David Animal Amantor <laughs> and Road Warrior John Hawk Amantorp. Love it. Thank you. Boys, how are you doing this week? <laughs> Today, I should say. <laughs> good, good. I, I can't wait to see the impact that Miss Elizabeth has at ringside yes. in a tag team match. How is she going to thwart the actions of Clearly the Clearly, she uh, slants the odds in the Mega Powers' <laughs> favor in the main event. 
We are coming to you with our very first bonus episode. It is, of course, January 23rd, 1996, and we are live from Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada for Clash of the Champions 32. We are coming to you in front of a sellout crowd of 3,100 fans, 2,800 whom paid for a total gate of $52,000. Wow, so you add that up with, with yesterday. I mean, like 24 hours getting... What like a hundred twenty thousand? About one hundred and ten. Yeah. yeah, very successful. Uh, and we'll get into why this was. Uh, WWE had other business, let's say, for being in Vegas at the time, and we'll talk about that in a little Ooh. bit. But I want to first mention that you can find us at Facebook.com/slash Twenty Years of Nitro on Twitter at Twenty Years of Nitro. You can email the show at Twenty Years of Nitro at gmail.com, and you can also find us online as part of the OSW Podcast Network. That is at PileDriverWrestling.net. And, of course, we are also part of the Freakin' Awesome Network at FreakinAwesomeNetwork.net. As I mentioned, this is our very first bonus episode, or we are not covering an episode of Nitro. Uh, I do encourage you, if you haven't listened to yesterday's show, you should probably do that now, because a lot happens on that show that informs what we're going to see uh, throughout the Clash of the Champions tonight. We probably should give a little brief history of the Clash of the Champions concept. Uh, this was first developed way back when Jim Crockett was still running things. And the inaugural edition was held on March 27th, 1988, in direct opposition to WrestleMania IV, uh, where Randy Savage won his first WWF title. Certainly, this was not the first time that a free cable wrestling event was programmed to suck viewers away from a competitor's pay-per-view, as the very first Royal Rumble was a USA cable special that was programmed against the NWA's Bunkhouse, bu uh, Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view. I almost said Bunkhouse Buck Stampede. That'd be better. <laughs> just an entire pay-per-view of Bunkhouse, Bunkhouse Buck yeah. matches. <laughs> Endurance match. He just gets opponent after opponent. In this match, Bunkhouse Buck also faces. <laughs> <laughs> Clash of the Champions was also an attempt to emulate the success of the WWF Saturday Night Main Event specials on NBC. And uh, the Clashes were especially notable uh, for not interrupting matches for commercials even though a lot of the matches in the early clashes would go 20-plus minutes. Eventually, at Clash of the Champions 6 in April of 1989, uh, that went up against WrestleMania 5, which, of course, centered around the Mega Powers exploding. And despite uh, that clash featuring NWA heavyweight champion Ricky Steamboat defending his title against Ric Flair in a 2 out of 3 falls match, the show underperformed in the ratings, and uh, they never directly programmed against WWF again. And WWF uh, stayed relatively free of program against WCW so really it wasn't until Nitro debuted in 95 that we once again saw these two companies go directly for each other uh, by programming you know opposite their counterpart yeah when I was uh, reading about Clash of the Champions that was the first thing that came to mind was the comparison to Saturday Night Main Event and uh, but it seems like this n nowadays or at least in 96 it was a way to encourage people to that aren't able to watch on Monday night to tune in on Monday nights. I don't know if that was kind of their idea for that. Yeah, it sort of over time evolved into rather than being a pay-per-view quality event, it sort of became an event to further storylines and promote the more traditional pay-per-views as well as the other television offerings. Mm -hmm. um, if you look, you know, an interesting thing is just look at the Wikipedia article where they list all the Clash of the Champions results, and you can see a huge drop-off in the length of matches over time. You know, the first maybe 10 of them all have matches in the 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and then by the time we get to tonight's show, there's not a single match that goes longer than 10. Yeah. So you really see how this became, uh, it evolved into less of a, 
pay-per-view that was free into a just television special that was on a, a, a different network. So as I mentioned, uh, WCW had other reasons for being in Vegas. They were there, uh, as, as Shivani sort of mentions a few times, because Las Vegas was the site of the National Association of Television Program Executives Conference. Uh, so this is basically just a big television trade show where program directors from local affiliates across the country would come together to be pitched by various syndicated content providers. So basically a bunch of, you know, rubes who run the station back in their town come and companies like WWF and WCW, uh, Paramount, who was making like Star Trek The Next Generation around this time, probably Hercules and Xena, that, those types of syndicated programs, they would try to pitch the program director, uh, directors on buying this content to put on their local affiliates. So WCW is said to have made a much bigger splash of the two wrestling companies uh, as they were able to bring out Hogan and Savage, um, whereas WWF brought HBK, who had somewhat of a line, but it was reported to just be a lot uh, smaller of a line than Hogan and Savage. Right. Uh, so that's uh, the, the other thing notable about that, uh, and this is coming from the Wrestling Observer, is that the WWF booth was also showing uh, the Billionaire Ted skits in addition to other uh, footage that they were showing at their booth. Uh-huh. And that kind of, uh, Meltzer says, that went over really poorly. It was considered to be like a, you know, with WCW in the building, it was just sort of skeezy mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, professional business people outside of the McMahon family were just well, <laughs> not comfortable with that whole well, scene. What was, what's the word that Vince McMahon used? Uh, tawdry? Tawdry. That's yeah. a good word. That's that's definitely tawdry. Yes. Yeah, those <laughs> skits are were not a way to build business, and um, especially since WWF, I think their on, on-screen product was still pretty good at this point. Yeah. Um, it's it's a poor way to try to market it, you know, these Absolutely. goofy skits. That not, not only that, but like they didn't even look good quality-wise. No, you know, no. If you're trying to sell a product to someone, you're showing these skits that don't, they don't look like they should really be on, like, any regular, kind of entertainment program <laughs> right. whatsoever. I, I'm i a little split. I do think that they were funny. I don't know that they were necessarily a good way to build an audience, as you said. Um, but I thought they were relatively funny. The issue I have is that they were put often in the main event spot on Raw. Like, they would build all of Raw until the last minute when you would see a 45-second sketch about how dumb they thought Ted Turner was. Right. And that just that's that's a waste of, of airtime. It should have been yeah. much earlier in the show. Before our event actually starts, there was a dark match. Lord Steven Regal uh, had a match against Chris Benoit, uh, and he actually injured his knee pretty bad, uh, and he is expected to be out a few months. He did win the match, though. Wait, Lord Steven Regal? Yeah. Double duty, baby. Wow. So he injures his knee, but he... he s- so as a magical. Yep. Yeah, he was actually a, a sub for Mike Wenner in yes, that match. Because we will see Mike Wenner later on in the yeah, show, although has, I'm not gonna has, ruin that surprise he right has now. More important things to do. <laughs> he if the name does. Mike Wenner rings a bell, you prepare to be treated later on tonight. Yeah, for some reason he couldn't do double duty in a <laughs> dark match <laughs> and what he does later. But Steven yeah. Regal but Steven <laughs> Regal can full on <laughs> wrestle two matches. Yeah. Or or maybe <laughs> Um, and then also, I had read that Chris Benoit busted himself open yes. during that match <laughs> for using headbutts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that dark match sounds like the most interesting match of the <laughs> show. By far the match of the night. <laughs> right. Yeah. So our show opens with a recap of uh, Nitro last night, first with Randy winning the belt, his confrontation with Hogan, then Sting and Luger winning the tag belts. Uh, they show the replay of Luger nailing 
Booker with the roll of uh, silver dollars, including silver dollars lying on the floor. And you might remember, if you listen to yesterday's episode, the announcers acknowledge that it's a roll of silver dollars. However, when they uh, show the replay, Shivani tonight says uh, that Lex obviously used something to defeat uh, Booker T. So... I don't know. I mean, there's silver dollars all over the ground. Uh, what could it have possibly been, right. Tony? But that's that's Tony Shivani <laughs> for you. I always feel with Shivani, uh, and this is really the first event that we've covered in depth with him. Mm-hmm. I feel like he means well, and I want I like him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's trying his darndest, but he's just bland. There's just yeah. he's just so so devoid of personality. Yeah, I don't feel like there's much of any improvisation for him and or or anything that would be going out of character or you know like to he doesn't play off any jokes or anything like that he yeah kinda, he kind of stays the course and, yeah and i'm sure maybe his notes didn't exactly say silver dollars so then he's like oh it, it's a thing he hit him with something he you know he always like you said he doesn't improvise and like bobby will give feed him some lines and he just doesn't really respond Mm -hmm. you know say what we will about mongo each and every week mongo at least gets into it with bobby like does what he says always make sense maybe not Mm -hmm. uh but you know he he still is trying his best yeah you can tell after uh you know a few months of watching and listening to those guys that like mongo is getting a much better idea of how to interact with bobby heenan yes whereas tony giovanni has done shows with bobby heenan for i assume a few years or whenever Bobby Heenan showed up. Right. Uh, you know, this is a bonus episode. And so this is maybe neither here nor there. In fact, it's, it's definitely neither, but something I just remembered. That's kind of a loose end that uh, we've had on the show. Uh, you remember Mongo saying, uh, a couple times when people have been crotched on the ropes that they're going to be parting their hair to go to the bathroom in the morning. Yes. I finally figured it. I figured it out actually like a month ago. I just keep forgetting to tell you guys. Okay. So you get crotched on the ropes, right? Uh-huh. I think the idea is that, it shoves your dick up into like it. You, you go down so hard, your dick is shoved up into like your forehead. Uh-huh. So to pee, you actually have to part your hair <laughs> to get around your dick. That's now at like eye level. <laughs> that's the only way it makes sense. Like that has to be what he means when he says that, right? I, I even if it's not, I like that. That's what it <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> doesn't make the line worth repeating by Bongo. <laughs> but so there. Now, now this bonus episode has earned its keep already by explaining <laughs> that that mystery, <laughs> the dangling thread. Uh, so after a nice introduction package running down the card, we are welcomed to Vegas by our announced team of Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan. They hype up uh, Hogan and Savage's secret weapons for tonight, Miss Elizabeth and Kevin Green. Uh, but since was was announced on live television yesterday, mm-hmm. I really feel like they're misusing the word secret at yeah. this point. Yeah, there's, and yet, and yet the thing with uh, when Hogan was facing Meng, yeah, remember that it was like uh, unnamed member of the Dungeon of Doom, but like the week before had been announced. Right, and they forget what's secret and what's been announced on on TV. Yeah, and so y- yesterday on Nitro, they I think they after they announced Miss Elizabeth, they still referred to it as a secret. And then tonight, it's just like on and off. It right. just depends on who who you're <laughs> asking. Was there ever a Hogan promo where he dangled the secret weapon and then later followed through on it? Or was she? Yes, yes. Okay. Hogan and Savage for weeks referred to secret weapons uh, mm-hmm. that they were going to unveil at a later date. So yeah. it actually was uh, built up. And then uh, and then I, they must have decided that they wanted to ensure the rating. So rather than have it be a surprise on the show, they announced it the night before. 
Yeah, they really should have, because I remember um, on that Nitro, um, Bischoff like mentions that, and he mentions the Road Warriors coming back. Yep. I think those um, announcements would have been a little more impactful had they actually had those guys on the show, because just a comment could kind of get lost in the commentary, but actually having them show up, then sure. I think you get a little more attention. Yeah, maybe him. they show up as a surprise on Nitro and then announce that they will be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bobby also notes that Kevin Green is on his way to the Super Bowl, and that's a pretty interesting note because the Steelers uh, are literally set to play the Cowboys in Super Bowl 30 five days after this event. Yeah. I feel like there's no way an NFL team would agree to that nowadays. Not nowadays, no. Pac-Man Jones was barely allowed to appear in TNA when he was on like a crappy team that was going nowhere during the season. Yeah. This guy is, is a all-pro player. Uh, who's <laughs> going to be in the Super Bowl five days after this, mm-hmm. and they're letting him out in Vegas where he's not only going to do the show, he's probably going to party with these guys afterward. Yeah, I don't think you're hanging out with Hogan and Savage and not doing a mountain of cocaine, right? <laughs> hanging and banging <laughs> on the beaches with the Hulkster. God. When they're hanging around with a bevy of other people's wives. Yes. <laughs> Hogan ignoring his own wife like he does on the show. <laughs> the hype continues as we're reminded that the Road Warriors are reunited and in the building tonight and that a wedding is going to be taking place uh, between, of course, Colonel Robert Parker and Sister Sherry. And to that, we go off to the Little White Chapel in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, And let's join Mean Gene and hear what he's got to say. Thank you, Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Weasel, Bobby the Brain Heenan. We are at a Little White Chapel in downtown Las Vegas, 24-hour drive-up wedding window. Joan Collins and Michael Jordan were married here, but not necessarily to each other. I've been inside, and here's where it's all going to be taking place tonight as Colonel Robert Parker and Sister Sherry exchange their wedding vows. I can hardly wait. You know, this is kind of like a funeral parlor in reverse. Got all kinds of little parties taking place in here as people kind of view. Well, that's another story I'll get to. I wonder if Lisa Marie and Michael Jackson, maybe not. Didn't work out anyway. What about Elizabeth Taylor? I think she hit the drive-up window. We're going to be uh, welcoming the guests for the big wedding, and we're going to keep you posted. In the meantime, Public Enemy and the Nasty Boys are standing by at Caesars as we get back to the strip. So that's kind of a weird little segment because it's really just Mean Gene performing a couple minutes of, like, lame stand-up. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's just jokes, and they're all references to, like, old showbiz things that I have no clue what he's talking about anymore. Yeah, uh, the one only one I got was Elizabeth Taylor, and that's still that's really dated even like in '96. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm confused because the sign he references the sign that says Michael Jordan and uh, Joan Collins. Did Michael Jordan actually get married at this place? Is that what yeah. that sign is advertising? Yeah, yeah, his first wife. I did not know yeah. that. <laughs> and also, uh, do, do none of these guys have any agreement? Is it is it Sister Sherry? Is it Sensational Sherry? It's either Sherry. Is, it, is it Sensuous Sherry? I think when she joined WCW, they couldn't say Sensational Sherry. Uh-huh. But because her name really is Sherry Martell, right. they could refer to a, her as Sensual Sherry. So that's like their WCW knockoff. Then when she began managing uh, Harlem Heat, she adopted the black-sounding Sister Sherry. <laughs> right. I mean, that's essentially what happened. Yeah, Unfortunately, no. that's the better of the two nicknames they <laughs> tried on her. It actually is. Sister <laughs> Sherry is much better than Sensual Sherry. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this Mean Gene segment that it hasn't aged well, but in its defense, uh, you know, at the time, no one saw anything like the network coming. This was something that was just meant to be on and then forgotten about 
a week later. Like, this was disposable entertainment right. uh, of the utmost order. So it, sometimes uh, I try to forgive these things because I remember, you know, sure, they were making lame jokes that you wouldn't understand three months down the road, but no one thought you'd be watching this three months down the road, you know? Yeah. And also, this going back to last month when um, they had the World Cup of Wrestling, you can tell, like, going into it that they're like, we really don't want to do this, but we have to give something. Yeah. This this feels like the same thing, too. It's like they're outside. I mean, I imagine if they're outside the chapel, that was like a way to be there without, like, having to pay for using it. Yeah. Well, it probably would have cost a lot to shut it down because uh, it apparently took six hours for them to film. Jesus. What, what ends up being about ten minutes that's of television. That's so inefficient. That's, <laughs> that's really embarrassing. Well, it's like, <laughs> as you see later, they're, like, setting up catering, like, outside, like, right. in the parking lot. It, Everything about it says, like, we yeah. we spent as little as possible to pull this off because because yeah. for some reason we need to deliver on this promise of a wedding. Well, the idea was actually the brainchild of uh, Rob Fuller, uh, who is Colonel Robert Parker. Okay, uh, he came up with this idea, and it was basically just everyone agreed that him and Sherry just had kind of a funny chemistry. Okay, um, yeah. And weddings always do pop a rating for wrestling for whatever reason. Um, they just consistently pop ratings, so. They booked it. Uh, the creative team thought it was a good idea. They liked the chemistry. But you're right. It certainly doesn't look like, uh, let's just say, expenses were spared. Yes. In <laughs> <this> case. <laughs> spared every expense. Yes. <laughs> For the very first time that I can recall at a WCW show, we get sort of a Titantron-like screen mm-hmm. next to the entranceway. There's, it's actually like a bunch of TV monitors just sort of stacked on top of each other. but we So that we can actually see like entrance videos. Yeah. The very first one that we get is for our first uh, competitors of the evening, Public Enemy. And it actually starts with, like, the video of the, you know, rather than a, a footage of the screen, it's like a live feed of the video that then cuts to the screen. Yeah. And they're, like, in a junkyard doing some, like, white guy rapping. Like, it's so slow, it's hard to call it even rap. Speaking of stuff that didn't age well. Yeah. White it, guy's yeah. rapping. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, they, they come out, and next, uh, out come the Nasty Boys to an equally cheesy theme song. Uh, I might even have to drop in some audio oh, of that theme song. God. I was trying to figure out if they actually sing the song. Ooh, I mean, that's a good question. I, I assume they I do. I think they probably it, do. It sounds like they do, but I couldn't find out. I couldn't find for sure. But, <laughs> oh, God, that song is something else. The Nasty Boys are, of course, Jerry Sags and Brian Nobbs, a.k.a. Jerome Saganovich. Saganovich? One of those two. <laughs> and Brian Yandrasovitz. Wow. Sags is uh, the dark-haired one. Nobbs is the blonde. And they are childhood friends from Pennsylvania. Uh, they debuted together in the AWA in 1985 and started teaming together under the Nasty Boys name beginning in 1986. They feuded with the Midnight Rockers in Memphis uh, and were five-time tag team champs in Florida Championship Wrestling in the late 1980s. They briefly competed in WCW in 1990, uh, but lasted less than a year before they were off to the WWF. They spent three years in the Federation, mostly as heels, uh, winning the tag team titles once. They then rejoined WCW in 1993, and they've been competing in the tag division ever since. And to this point, they have won the tag belts a total of three times. The one thing I want to know from their time in the WWF is when they at WrestleMania faced the Hart Foundation and won the tag team titles, mm-hmm. uh, and that was like an amazingly competent match that they had. Yeah, I gotta say, uh, I would often call them my least favorite tag team of all time. <laughs> right. 
Uh, I just find them gross. I find their hair gross. I find their presentation gross. I'm not someone who has a great appreciation, although it's grown. I didn't always have a great appreciation for brawling style wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's changed, I now think that every card needs variety and you need your your brawlers. Yeah. Um, but I just historically, if you ask me to name like my least favorite tag team, it would be the Nasty Boys. Yeah, I would say that they're pretty much glorified bushwhackers. Because of bushwhackers, they didn't at least like waste everyone's time giving right. them the championship. Whereas the Nasty Boys, it kind of had a... We've had many years of having to put up with them. Plus, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Nasty Boys, when they were heels at least, rub guys' faces in their armpits? I think that, that was a, a baby face thing. Oh, Pity City. God. Pity City, yeah. I feel bad that the first note I have written for this show is I really like the Nasty Boys, but I, I don't <laughs> no, want to say well, anything else no, about that's, I We need that because, you know, the the... <laughs> It's a subjective art form, as the guys on We Watch Wrestling podcast are always saying, and that's <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You know, because I, mean, I was mentioning on the show yesterday about how much I liked Public Enemy. And sure. What I was saying is my defense of that was that since at the time, without really much of a, a good internet access or anything like that, we couldn't see a lot of ECW. So it was just really cool to see like the ECW flavor. Yeah. In, in WCW, because like they they they. They gave us Sabu, then they just took him away. Right. Right away. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> And all because he booked himself in a show that he knew contractually he wasn't allowed to. Yeah. What jerks. Yeah. But pu- <laughs> Public Enemy, I, I will admit, are not, like, really good wrestlers whatsoever. <laughs> but they kind of have, like, that entertainment factor. Yeah. I can see how people would like the Nasty Boys. I, I could certainly understand that appeal, but that's not an appeal that I would ever go for. <laughs> also, in retrospect, they're less fat than I thought they were. Like, in my yeah. mind, they're big, fat, out-of-shape guys. They really weren't that bad. Like, I'm fatter and more out-of-shape than those two They were two both guys. built like Bubba Ray Dudley, kind of. Yeah, Except that's a good they're comparison. not as uh, fit, I guess. Yeah. Because he was a bigger guy that still moved around while these guys I did also not. remember Brian Knobs a lot from uh, uh, Hogan Knows Best. Oh, okay. And when he was on there, <laughs> he was just, he was, like, obese. Yeah. And yeah. so I saw him like that a lot and with a... With a with a receding mohawk. Yeah. Oh, gross. <laughs> yeah. And there is one episode where Nick has a party, and uh, when Nobbs is in the shower, they steal all of his clothes. Yeah. Aww. So he has to walk around in Hulk Hogan's tights. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, that anyway. Sad. On that note. <laughs> like I said, I like the Nasty Boys. <laughs> Bobby informs us that we are not going to be seeing a lot of wrestling maneuvers in this match. Uh, as we <laughs> mentioned, these are two big brawling teams. Shivani reminds us that the public enemy are from South Philly when they're, of course, actually from Georgia and Louisiana, respectively. <laughs> and he tells us that the Nasty Boys are from New York City when they're actually from an hour outside Philly. <laughs> <laughs> Wrestling. <laughs> Before the match begins, the crowd breaks out in a loud uh, Nasty Boys chant. Yeah, I didn't know that, that the fans are like really into the Nasty Boys in the show. I mean, I always try to give you know credit to guys when maybe i don't like them but the crowd clearly does last night mm-hmm. uh and and throughout recently we've seen huge reactions for luger yep. uh and and now we've got a nasty boys chant so maybe they don't appeal to me but clearly there's a big segment of the crowd that does like these guys mm-hmm. me and all the other booger eaters <laughs> <laughs> starting off we get johnny grunge and brian Nobbs uh fighting in the ring while jerry sags and Flyboy rocco rock fall to the outside where they continue brawling uh inside an irish whip and a clothesline on grunge is then followed by Sags whipping Rock into the guardrail. So the Nasty Boys are firmly in control as we start off. So again, we see Public Enemy getting dominated early in their match. Yeah. Rocco Rock returns the favor, whipping Jerry Sags into the guardrail. 
Back in the ring, Johnny Grunge moves out of the way of a Brian Knobs attempt at nasty splash, which is exactly the same <laughs> as a stinger splash, only nasty. <laughs> Grunge then hits a belly-to-back suplex, and Tony goes, oh, well, that's the first wrestling move we've seen in this match. The match is only 40 seconds old. That's actually, like, doing pretty good, I think. There were some like, Irish whips, too, huh? <laughs> Like he's he's just really quick to be like oh finally they're wrestling it's like dude it's, that's uh, you could give him some time <laughs> he he had the talking point in there he had to get it back on the outside Rocco has a wrist lock on Sags and he stands up on the guardrail like he's kind of gonna do Undertaker's old school only on the guardrail right but Sags ki- kicks the rail and Rocco gets crotched on the metal rail yeah and even with a cup it looks like that had to really hurt yeah. Right? I don't know that how was you not fake a, that. that yeah. Even with a cup, that's because the cup is just going to get driven into that like sensitive skin around your crotch. Do you that's even know if too. he had a cup on? Who knows? Because I, th- I thought that the trick was always to land like on your inner thigh or whatever, you know, instead of. If he managed somehow hit. to avoid genital mutilation on that move, I'm amazed. <laughs> Sags wanders off and comes back to the ring with a table. Oh. Uh, Bobby Heenan has a great line there. Yeah. Tony Schiavone's like, well, where's he going? And uh, Bobby Heenan's like, well, he's not going to take a shower. It's not Saturday. (laughs) 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 To give you an idea of just sort of everyone's attitude about this match, I'd like you all to listen to this quick exchange between Heenan and Schiavone. Let me ask you a question. Who's the legal man? I don't think it matters, does it? Nobbs misses a dive at Grunge uh, to the outside and lands throat first on the rail, which also looks pretty painful. Sags delivers his table to the ring. Rocco rockets in the ring, uh, and Sags tries to run him through the table, but Rocco instead hits a running bulldog. So there's another wrestling move. By the way, this whole time, Nick Patrick is like almost pantomiming officiating the match. <laughs> I mean, he, he'll go to the, out to the ring. I mean, he'll look outside the ring, right. and he'll yell at them, I don't know what, or, and then sometimes he, like, warns him about something. To be fair, I think Nick Patrick spent his entire career pantomiming, res- uh, refereeing a match. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Actually, that's not even an insult. That really is what they do. Like, they're not refereeing a real athletic contest. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you're right. He His, his moves are odd and over-exaggerated, even for a professional wrestling. Well, and, like, the guy brings a table into the ring, and yeah. he doesn't, like, immediately <laughs> remove the table or disqualify him. He just kind of <laughs> looks at it. And he, lo- he gets, like, angry. <laughs> yeah. Grunge and Sags uh, now head to the outside as Rocco hits Knobs with a flying forearm in the ring. Uh, he then heads to the top rope and hits a very nice looking moonsault. And I didn't know that Rocco Rock had hit such a nice uh, moonsault. I mean, it was it was really good, especially mm-hmm. for a big man. I love. Stay when... tuned. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Sags catches Grunge with a back body drop onto the floor back outside. All four men then climb in the ring, but the Nasties quickly eject Rocco Rock, and Sags hits a pile driver on Johnny Grunge. The Nasty Boys set up the table. Uh, before, it was kind of set up in the corner, I should say, so now they're setting it up more like you would normally have a table uh, <laughs> on its on its legs and all. <laughs> and by the way, that pile driver was like the most, it was like the gentlest pile driver because like, I still cringe, though, It looked just good. watching pile drivers these days. That one in particular looks really weird because it's like Sags, brought his legs together mm-hmm. and he just like kind of lands on his lap pretty yeah much. i think yeah. that that's kind of sort of the trick too. it actually looked very safe yeah like, yeah uh, the way but like it. knowing that uh johnny grunge said he like lost like four inches from taking pile drivers and power bombs oh. in his life just makes me cringe watching him <laughs> take one here yeah and that was four inches of his dick too so <laughs> <laughs> so he does <laughs> 
following the pile driver, uh, the Nasty Boys set up the table, uh, and Nick Patrick inexplicably calls for the bell. He didn't call for it when it was set up in the corner. Right. He didn't wait until someone had used it as a weapon. Yep. He just arbitrarily picked, like, oh, no, now that it's on all four legs, yeah, this hey, is he done. <laughs> it's bizarre. So this is going to go down in a double DQ, and it seems like... I mean, I'm just I'm just throwing shit at the wall, but it, it seems like this is one of those double DQs that's like no one wants to lose to each other. Mm. Or maybe the brass doesn't want them to lose to each other because they're headed towards a feud, you know, so let's not... Or yeah. the Nasty Boys are Hogan's buddies, and, it, you know, you can't bring Public Enemy in and just have them lose in their right. first match, and Nasty Boys can't lose either. Of course, that always then begs the question, why have them wrestle each other? Yeah. <laughs> and, and why... I mean, why, why would they have this match when the Road Warriors have returned and they should be having a match? Especially because they could win and then set up some credibility to challenge Luger and Sting for the belts. Right. Rather than just coming in and hey, saying, Hey, let's not get ahead okay, of Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Following the DQ, Public Enemy manages to kick Sags out of the ring and they get knobs laying on the table. Flyboy Rocco Rock then hits another moonsault uh, intended to drive him through the table. But this is a, like, industrial size, mm-hmm. well, not industrial size, but industrial strength, very, like, thick. This is not a wrestling cheap, cheap table. This like is like a real sawdust table. table. Right, sort of yeah. Thing. I mean, it's the kind of table where there's probably lots of chew gum underneath it. <laughs> Grunge breaks off a big piece of it and goes to hit knobs, but a recovered Jerry Sags grabs it and breaks. It's basically like a two-by-four at this point, mm-hmm. and he breaks it across Johnny Grunge's back. In, w- in which a piece clearly goes flying into the crowd. Yes. Sweet. Which which I'm like, that's probably not good. <laughs> not in 2015. <laughs> yeah, no, back then, like, no one gave a shit. They are like, oh, my daughter died, but I'm not going to sue you because I'm not an asshole. <laughs> my, my daughter <laughs> I, I took that risk when I came to your show. <laughs> it, was, it was printed on the ticket. <laughs> Sags wax Grunge again as Grunge leaves the ring. And then when Grunge is on the outside, Sags picks up the entire table mm. and tosses it on Johnny Grunge. It's a direct hit right to the face, too. Nails him. Oh, yeah. That's the best. The table cracks further, like, on Grunge's head. Mm-hmm. So now there's like a big kind of corner piece that Sags manages to break off. And then he beats Johnny Grunge all the way to the back, like into yeah. the locker room. Well, not into the locker room. Beats him all the way to the back, like through the curtain. And then Sags decides to run all the way back in the ring, presumably <laughs> to use that chunk to beat up Rocco Rock. But we'll never know because we go to commercial. <laughs> I, I, I gave Sags a lot of credit for that that decision because it's very disappointing when someone doesn't quite go through a table. Yeah. But then said. The table goes through the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and That's it, a good way of thinking. And, you know, he, yeah, he broke off a piece and he broke that across oh. someone's back. He definitely saved, like, we're out here to do violent big spots. It got a little botched, so, like, let's just make up a few more. I agree. I think that was great. Yeah. Uh, so I thought this match was short and the double DQ was called at a very weird time. Uh-huh. But overall, uh, despite, like I said, I'm not a big fan of either of these teams, I actually thought this was a really good match. Um, it was it was an entertaining few minutes. You want them to brawl and to get violent, and they yeah. gave exactly what you were looking for. Yeah, and there was, I can't, of anything they did, there was no bad timing, no blown spots or botches. Did they do a ton of, like, big involved spots? No, but they did everything that they set out to do, and they did it well. So, which, which I, big which thumbs am- up for this match. Which is amazing for Tim, since, like, Anytime anyone does a bulldog, he usually has someone <laughs> has a dispute about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The running bulldog in, in this match was actually great. I loved it. <laughs> Way better than Sting's, right? Well, Sting's running bulldog is not good. Or, what I hate or is pretty much anyone's. What I hate is when the guy has his hand 
on the back of the other dude's head just weakly, mm-hmm. you need to have your arm fully around their neck to explain why the force is enough to carry them down in the mat. So basically, he doesn't like it when Chris Jericho does them. I like oh, his. his. I think his are terrible. I like his a lot. But like, or that, Cena's. Cena's are yeah. so. Cena's bad. everything is terrible. But back in the, or like back in the day, Bret Hart like he hooked in. He would yes. like give, almost give him a noogie. Yeah. Yes. In the, yeah. And then, C- and then CM Punk like took the same yep. same thing and he's like you you hook them in there and force them. So we get that uh, very bland Super Brawl promo that we mentioned yesterday. <laughs> uh, this time it really stuck out to me that the first line is it's not about losing, it's about winning. <laughs> That's the best you could fucking come up with to sell it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What pay-per-view is about losing? Yeah, I, for, where, for Bischoff being like a, a marketing genius almost, yeah. their pay-per-view promos are terrible. Yeah, it's, All of them. It's like they're such an afterthought. Like, oh, I don't think Bischoff... They, they, don't, they don't have, like, memorable... Like, you know, you can remember, like, the first 10 WrestleMania posters, you know, but... But wait, what, what, when the monster becomes the man? Oh, yeah, yeah. The is Halloween that, Havoc? Oh, he's got you there. Havoc. He's okay. got you there. That was, <laughs> that that was, was that, brilliant. I was being unreasonable. Thank <laughs> you. Hulk Hogan morphs into a monster truck? That's amazing. As we come back to the show, Bischoff is now in the aisle, and he brings out the Flair and the Giant along with Jimmy Hart. Uh, we then get uh, Ric Flair giving a little promo where he says that losing the title means nothing to him. And somewhere a young Nikki Bella takes notes. <laughs> Bischoff actually had a good line there. He, w- he was like, well, there's no way you really mean that. Uh, Flair also creepily talks about him and the giant uh, having some sort of conversation with a uh, woman talking about, like, the size of the giant's dick. He said but little he calls, girl. Yes, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. He, he calls the woman a little girl. He says, we were talking to, and I'm like, the way he sets it up is like, oh, you were talking to a child? What did she say? And then it right. ends up about the giant being giant size. And I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Flair. Another thing that would never happen in 2015. <laughs> that's, that's the sort of thing that nowadays he's had people be like, you, no, it's not cool to talk about <laughs> little girls like that. <laughs> We then get a commercial, and as we come back, Malenko's music is playing. As Tony claims, you know, we've heard the the partially true claim that WCW is the number one most watched wrestling show. Uh-huh. Uh, but this time, Tony <laughs> claims that WCW is number one in entertainment around the world. <laughs> that's, that's covering so much ground. Go ahead. Fact check me. Yeah. In 1996, <laughs> fire up AOL online. We see a replay of Malenko versus Alex Wright from last week's episode of Saturday Night. Uh, it ended when Malenko locked on a Texas Cloverleaf. Alex Wright got to the ropes, but uh, Malenko refused to let go. He just sat there uh, injuring the young man from Germany. And so, wearing fire engine red knee pads. Yeah. <laughs> Those look terrible. So there isn't a ton of build for this match, but when you've got... Uh, Two great second-generation wrestlers like Malenko and Alex Wright. I don't think you need a ton of backstory. Just let him get in the ring, you know? Right. At least there was something. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's more than, like, half of the WWE pay-per-view matches that yeah. take place now. Yeah. So this is, this is like, the second time since Nitro started that Alex Wright has a knee injury, only this time it wasn't for, like, trying the Disco Inferno dance move. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I, I still accept that as actual reason for the original injury. <laughs> Alex Wright is out, and he's noted as being much more intense than normal, which means that he only gives out slightly less high fives on the way to his <laughs> ring, and he doesn't smile this step. Like, so he's got an intense look in his face, but he still takes like his time high-fiving, glad-handing a bunch of kids on his way down. 
Oh, and he doesn't dance, so you know he's serious. <laughs> and and Tony Giovanni tries to sell the fact that he's favoring his knee, but I don't. I didn't really see. It did not look not like at he all. was yeah. at all. We start off with a lockup and a side headlock takedown by Wright, reversed by Dean with a head scissors. Wright then flips over well in the head scissors and then kips up to get out of the hold. Mm-hmm. Very cool little sequence to open the match. They then repeat the beginning but switch roles as this time Dean gets a side headlock takeover and Wright reverses it into a head scissors. Dean then pops out of it and springs on Wright with a headlock. Wright reverses that into a hammerlock and now they're both standing. Dean twists out of it and sweeps the leg taking Wright down. Wright gets to his feet and then they're staring like having a little standoff. Mm-hmm. And a smart wrestling crowd would have had a huge pop right here because that was a great little opening sequence yeah but this vegas crowd of tourists just sits there like boring <laughs> yeah why is the short guy fighting the skinny kid i'm not sure if at this time that the applause after chain wrestling was like kind of a thing yet sure i, I, I feel like that was more something that ecw uh cultivated yeah that though that could be yeah, mid to late 90s kind well, of these thing. guys deserve some fucking applause at that <laughs> point and they didn't get it and it bothered me <laughs> They circle and lock up before Wright starts working a side headlock. Dean goes for a belly to back, but Wright flips all the way around, landing on his feet. He then goes for a German suplex, but Dean manages a standing switch, uh, which is a move that's, you know, you've, you've got a guy behind you holding you in a waist lock, and you just switch around, mm-hmm. you know, roll around so you're holding them from behind. Yeah. It's called a standing switch. I've never heard it called in WWF, like in history. That is something that they always call in WCW. Uh, and I've just, do you recall ever hearing a WWF announcer say that? I think it's an amateur move too. I think that's like what it actually is called in in hmm. amateur wrestling. Sure. No, I I I guess I haven't really thought of it. Maybe Gorilla Monsoon, but I think that's uh, maybe a more modern term than no. Dean powers right forward into the ropes looking for an O'Connor roll, but Wright hangs onto the ropes. Malenko essentially so he's rolling back trying for the O'Connor roll, so he does a backward somersault and then flips forward with a handspring uh, and then drops right down to the mat. So it the intention was so that Wright would then run over him, like, right as he drops. But the timing is, like, just a hair off. Mm-hmm. So Wright runs over him, like, a second too late to make it look anything other than planned, for right. lack of a better word. Yep. And I- then Wright does a back handspring over Dean's prone body and hits a drop kick. That all sounds like an amazing spot on paper, but there's just something in the timing, and you realize that there's this really fine line in like technical flippy shit kind of wrestling mm-hmm. uh where when done right and everything is crisp and everything is timed it looks amazing and it looks more realistic than like any other kind of wrestling yeah i mean yeah guys are doing flips but it still just seems natural in the flow of things but once you get on the other side of that line when the timing gets even just a bit off it looks like two guys who just have talked about what they're going to do, and now they're doing exactly what they talked about. That that re- does remind me of that particular tag match where Alex Wright had his knee injury. Yeah. Uh, because Demolinko and Eddie Guerrero, they, th- I just remember that they looked over rehearsed. Oh, I remember you saying that at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and so I get what you say. Like they, you, they can execute the moves and not mess them up. But like if you, if like the flow of the moves, if it looks too orchestrated or if it's like like you said, just a little bit off. It just, you just, with guys that are that good, you notice just that slight decrease of quality. And that's always an argument from some of the bigger name guys, like a Hogan, for instance, which is like, that to some degree, less is more. Because when you start doing all that stuff, you have more chances to screw that that stuff up. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're talking about the Nasty Boys and Public Enemy who really barely did anything, but yeah. because they did every single thing well, 
that match, well, technically much less impressive mm-hmm. than the one we're getting right now. Overall, I might say that I liked it more because everything that was done had a crispness and a believability to it that this match kind of lost me at around this point uh, with that spot. Yeah, because Nasty Boys and Public Enemy don't have like much of any timing moves. Right. Yeah, I, I've i always felt that Alex Wright is a really good athlete, but I didn't think he was a, a very good wrestler, honestly. Um, and I think part of the timing issues in this match is because with Dean Malenko in most of his matches, you can tell he's got the next two or three things kind of um, – like queued up and sure. he knows what's gonna what's coming next but with Alex Wright I didn't really get that same impression I think that's why they had some timing issues yeah I I also feel that Alex Wright is another guy that maybe can't think on the fly yeah that he's maybe more dependent on like I know how to do this move and this move and this is the order we're gonna do him in so if anything gets messed up sometimes it looks like he doesn't know quite what to do sure Wright follows the drop kick with a head scissors takeover and Dean rolls to the outside to regroup as a fired-up Wright now plays the crowd. Malenko climbs back in, and Wright misses the clothesline. He tries a kick, but Malenko catches his foot. He tries an enziguri, but Malenko ducks, and Wright lands on his belly, and Malenko drops an elbow right on his knee. And that was, like, the opposite sequence of what I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. All the timing on that was wonderful. Yeah, That was such a good spot with Wright just trying everything he had, and Malenko just has the perfect counter for everything. It was so great. I really, really liked it. Yeah, and Bobby Keenan made the comment of, uh, have you ever seen anyone drop an elbow on someone's knee before? Right. Mm-hmm. Like he, he was impressed with like his strategy. Of course, that's a few seconds later because during most of that segment, they're plugging that you can hop on CompuServe and chat with <laughs> Eric Bischoff. Oh, about the uh, skits that the competition's been running? I'm pretty sure. Was oh, that, that comes later, actually. Okay, okay. Um, it's kind of interesting the whole get on CompuServe, like ignoring the match to talk about getting on CompuServe, because uh-huh. it shows you that like from the beginning of like the infancy of social media, that we were already ignoring matches to promote that kind of bullshit. We were right. doomed from the start. Having hit Wright's knee, Malenko now starts focusing on it. Of course, setting up the Texas Cloverleaf. He hits a rolling knee and a baseball slide, both directed at the knee. Uh, before heading outside and whipping Wright's leg into the ring post. As Malenko works the knee with some kind of submission that I don't know the name of, Bobby defends comments in the past about how he finds uh, Sherry Martell beautiful. Shivani tries to outright steal Gorilla Monsoon's bit here because he says twice, will you stop? And I was, like, ready to punch my TV. I was just like, that's Gorilla's line, you son of a bitch! (laughs) Wright fights back into things with a top rope springboard crossbody, which seems like if you have a knee injury, yeah. maybe jumping up onto the top rope and springing backwards while twisting your body around in midair. Rob Van Dam ex- was taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Wright then hits some European uppercuts, but Dean catches uh, his arms, and they try to power one another over for a backslide. Dean starts winning the power struggle, so instead Wright just backflips all the way around, landing on his feet. Uh, but Dean still has an arm hooked, so Wright knees him in the gut to free himself. He then whips Dean off the ropes and hits a big drop kick. Back on their feet, they grapple until Dean hits a side suplex. Uh, Malenko heads to the top rope, but Wright kicks him again, stunning Malenko and allowing Wright to hit a pretty nice-looking superplex. Wright follows that up with a bridging German suplex for a two-count, and I may have missed one or two, but there have not been a lot of covers in this match so far. It's been a lot of just back-and-forth action with each man recovering fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And not only that, this is one of those few matches that stays in the ring. 
<laughs> which is a nice change. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Malenko ducked out at the beginning, but otherwise... But no fighting happens out yeah. there. He just regroups. Mm-hmm. Wright hangs on and tries to go for another German suplex, but Malenko elbows him to break the hold. Wright misses a drop kick, and Dean takes over. Alex Wright manages to get back in with an Irish whip, but then he does that Daniel Bryan spot where you run to the turnbuckles and then like run up them and flip backwards. Yeah. Only... Dean is standing in the corner, so it's like this is meant to be some kind of offensive move. Like, I run at you, but then I flip backwards away from you. I don't... I was baffled Someone at why these he days does that, too. I'm trying to... That was, that was uh, an example, like I was saying, of uh, Alex Wright not really thinking on the fly, because he, he does that, and then you, you can tell there's a moment where he does not know what to do next. You know... I think it's a timing issue. Because maybe it's something is very off. Yeah. Well, because when he lands, Dean Malenko hits the, the, the low drop kick on him, right? Yep. Is yep. It, yeah. So I think it's just kind of a timing issue. Yeah, because it plays into the finish. So yeah. I can't imagine that it was just came out of nowhere. Like it yeah. must have been something planned that just didn't work the way it should have. Uh, so Dean hits a low drop kick on the injured knee and then Dean gets a jackknife roll up for the three count. Although to be more accurate, it's a two count. As Malenko just gets up early and Wright kind of, like, attempts to kick out, mm-hmm. but since Dean gets up, it looks as like Wright did kick out. Uh, everyone stands there confused for a moment, but then Randy Anderson calls for the bell since that was supposed to be the ending. Yeah. And he hit three. Yeah. And it's and it's very quickly uh, swept under the rug with the announcers just being like, yep, he got him. Yeah. Got him right in the middle of the ring. With the <laughs> pin, the three. So they don't really even like sell it as being controversial. They're just like, they just ignore the botch completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I always prefer if you incorporate it into the story. It, acknowledge it. Don't insult my intelligence. Yeah. It looked like Wright kicked out. You know, I don't know why Randy Anderson called for the bell. And then, then you can work that into a program. They can have another match. To settle it, you know? So it just sucks when you just pretend it didn't happen. That That's insulting. This was a good match, uh, but held back from being a great match by some of the timing issues. We've certainly covered those well. Uh, I also thought that Wright's psychology was, was a little fucked up because he did way too many big moves on an injured knee. Yeah. And I guess you could defend that to a bit by saying that's just his offense and, you know, that's what he's good at and he's, you know, maybe he's just too in- inexperienced to change it up. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is a story to be told there, but for me, uh, I just don't like a guy hitting top rope, springboard, cross bodies yeah. when the point of the me- the story told so far is how his knee's hurting, you yeah. know? What do you guys think of the match? Well, I mean, just in general, when it comes to Alex Wright, the thing to remember is that at that time, he was literally 20 years old. Wow. Yeah. That you is know? amazing. So, uh, I, I feel like as his career goes on, he gets better. Um or, or at least his timing gets a little bit better. Um, but, like, as far as this match is concerned, again, like, in contrast with the tag team match, there's just a higher standard that we have for, for like, the really athletic wrestlers. For the cruiserweights, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I don't feel like they – I think they were close, but not quite living up to their own expectations. So I thought it was, like, a okay match. And also the finish was just so weird. Yeah. It kind of, uh, to me, the ending stuck out way more than anything that happened in the match. Right. Unfortunately. So I thought it was okay, but not really anything I would go back and watch again. It it should have been match of the night, but, you know, I, I think that some of the problems held it back for me. But mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> okay. 
we get a commercial with the promise that up next is going to be the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan versus Disco Inferno. Uh, when we get back from commercial, the Taskmaster comes out with Jimmy Hart. The start of his entrance video is like creepy skulls and stuff, you know. Uh, but the word Taskmaster is written on the screen. And I know, Dave, you must have noticed this because I know what a fan you are. It's just in the font of Jurassic Park. Yeah. Taskmaster <laughs> is just written in Jurassic. They didn't even change the colors. That's it's awesome. yellow with the red line in the middle. I didn't notice that. That's it's, awesome. It's just Jurassic Park font. It's insane. <laughs> like, how? that's the least evil thing I can think of. Those dinosaurs weren't even evil. They were just hungry and big. They were misunderstood. <laughs> I, I saw that. I was like... Oh, I should watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Can you guys explain the backstory to this? Like, was there backstory for this match on previous Nitros? That there, it, none on Nitro. We haven't actually okay. seen Disco on Nitro in quite some time. Mm-hmm. But on the B and C shows, the, okay. uh, the pros, the Saturday nights, worldwide, what have you, worldwide, <laughs> Disco, uh, and I haven't seen the segment specifically, but uh, Tony says basically that Disco's been talking shit about the Taskmaster. <laughs> so I don't know why the... Dancing, fun-loving heel is going after the satanic heel. Yeah, it, I, Disco Inferno is so <laughs> awesome. Yeah, other than he's great. Like, yeah, I would actually love to see those promos. And and you weren't here um, during our last recording sessions. I downloaded all of the 1996 Saturday nights from a torrent site. Cool. So I may go back and try to find those. <laughs> oh, in another uh, loose end from yesterday's show, I watched the uh, one man gang versus super giant ninja match. Ah, gotcha. Uh, not that bad. <laughs> Like it wasn't great, but yeah. like Meltzer is like, oh, that might be the worst match of the year. No, it was it was really not that terrible. Was, was that fine. him against Kensuke Sasaki? No, it was One Man Gang versus uh, the Ate, who has now been rebranded okay. Super Giant Ninja, <laughs> which is an amazing name. <laughs> is that like a an all or New Japan gimmick, or is he still in WCW no, at this he's time? He's still in WCW. He's just not the Ate. He's huh. not part of the Dungeon of Doom. Mm-hmm. He's just Super Giant Ninja. I don't remember that at all. That's oh, awesome. Oh, then you need to watch the Saturday Night, Ooh. my friend. Disco's theme uh, plays, and Penzer announces him, but instead out comes an Elvis impersonator with a peanut butter and banana sandwich. Yes, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the impersonator is former WCW jobber Mike Winner, uh, who we mentioned earlier. He was originally going to be the dark match opener, but was replaced by Regal, who then got injured. Uh, so he apparently could not compete because he was busy preparing for his big segment impersonating Elvis. <laughs> also, I was a little distracted by how sloppy that uh, peanut butter banana sandwich looked. <laughs> yeah. There was way too much uh, banana, not enough bread. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> right. slice the banana. They just stuck a banana <laughs> <Yeah>. inside <laughs> of a sandwich. Yeah, they were just like, like a whole banana. They're like, we need to make sure people <laughs> from a distance know what he's eating. Jeez. And because I'm, Elvis holding a sandwich... Like, fucking everyone knows what that means. Elvis died before all of us were born, and right. we all know he ate fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches. <laughs> right. Everyone fucking knows that. <laughs> Jesus. I, just, I was like, I'm amazed of how distracted I am by this fucking yeah, sandwich. You can't make a sandwich prop for the guy 38 rows back. You know? <laughs> right. I think they get the picture. Winner by this time is uh, training wrestlers at the fairly new WCW power plant. And uh, he delivers in one very interesting Elvis impersonation Mm -hmm. a message to Sullivan from the Disco Inferno. And uh, because I have so much hate in my heart for you, the listening audience, (laughs) I'm going to play that promo uh, now. I have no idea what's going on here. Maybe he's going to try to pawn his daughter off on another guy. I don't know. Been uh, chewing on a peanut butter sandwich here. Okay, (laughs) good. 
Vegas. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, the king is back. I don't know what. Let's hear what he's got to say here. Queen's a peanut butter off the roof of his mouth. I'm here, to ladies and gentlemen. I'm here to deliver a singing telegram from the Disco Inferno to Mr. Taskmaster. A singing telegram for the Disco Inferno to the Oh, we all couldn't make it to the clash. I'm dancing at the Colonel's wedding. It's a big bash. Disco said that you're not very hip, but he knows that you'll give me a Beating up Elvis Presley. Well, he's going to feel that punch all the way back to Graceland. The Taskmaster beats the shit out of fake Elvis. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Hart grabs a mic and, in probably my favorite line of the entire night, declares that the Taskmaster hates Elvis impersonators. Mm -hmm. As if, like, they're back at the Dungeon of Doom sacrificing goats and whatnot, and occasionally Taskmaster is just going off about how much he <laughs> hates Elvis impersonators. Also, uh, my knee-jerk reaction was that Mike Winters was wasted. Oh, vi that very Possibly. well could be. Yeah. He sounds like he is. Yeah. Because I mean, the end the end lyrics of that song, mm -hmm. who knows what the fuck he said. Oh, saying. he was hamming it up, though. You could tell he was having fun. He loved That's good it. stuff. Yeah. And the, the crowd hates him so much that for probably the only time in his career, uh, Kevin Sullivan gets a baby face pop. Yeah. Like, they love that he beats the shit out of fake yeah. Elvis. Oh, and double stomps him. Yeah, Ugh. that weak, weak-looking double stop. <laughs> he's a tiny little... I mean, yeah. he's, he's a fairly small guy, so his move being a thing where he stomps on you, that's not a move that fits his body at all. Mm -hmm. He's a It's a giant baby stepping on you. Interestingly enough, and I don't know that this is true, but Meltzer alleges in the Wrestling Observer that the original plan was to have a Kevin Sullivan Disco Inferno match, but WCW realized fairly last minute that because Disco was filmed in some of the scenes at the wedding, uh -oh. he couldn't also be <laughs> across town having a match on the show. Wow. I have no way of knowing if that's true. I mean, Meltzer's somewhat reliable. Mm -hmm. He does make mistakes, and he, he has a hard-on for hating WCW at this point. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I can fully get on board with that, but if true, it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Well, Disco does make a comment um, when he shows up when Mean Gene's walking Sherry to the... Yeah. Um, He's like, I told you I'd make it, so that made me think the whole thing was kind of planned. But the um, the one thing that maybe corroborates it, I mean, it's not, it's not really. But uh, on Sullivan's podcast, he's asked about this segment. You know, why would you uh, supposedly, you know, one of the top heels in WCW? Why would you book this moment where you're guaranteed to get a babyface reaction? And his explanation, I don't even remember what it was. It's it's very weak. Oh, like, he has virtually no explanation as to why this segment happened. <laughs> so so maybe that's a sign that it no was... No explanation would do for that <laughs> segment anyway. Speaking of the wedding, we go back to me and Gene for a wedding update. Apparently the colonel hasn't arrived yet. Uh, Bunkhouse Buck and Dirty Dick Slater show up and claim the last time they saw him was at a craps table. This is really the first time I've got a good look at these two. Dirty Dick Slater is one of the ugliest people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Which is amazing to say since he's standing next to Bunkhouse Buck. Yeah, Bunkhouse Buck is a better looking of the two. <laughs> like when they go out, he gets way more attention. <laughs> Although both of them are still better looking than Scotty Riggs. 
Ooh, I don't know. We should come up. We should definitively make a list. And yeah, let's rate do all another. the male attractive superstars. <laughs> yes, I'd really like to do that. <laughs> Back at Caesars, uh, Bischoff brings out the new tag team champs, Sting and Lex Luger. The dynamic between these two in this segment is hilarious, and I give Luger legitimate props for how he plays this interview. Mm-hmm. I think this is the most charismatic I have ever seen Luger. Yeah. He basically, like, his character's attitude is that if he acts positive and enthusiastic enough, Sting is just going to ignore the fact that he cheated to win the belts. (laughs) He's just like, if I act so much like a positive, happy baby face, Mm -hmm. Sting is just going to, like, have no choice but to be my buddy. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sting is like the girlfriend of a drunk guy at a party. Huh. Like, He's yelling and hamming it up, and Sting's in the background like, Jesus Christ, I don't want to be here. <laughs> like, he doesn't speak for me. <laughs> oh, all of our friends are seeing this. <laughs> it is so, so funny. <laughs> I I really loved it. Uh, Lex does pretty much all the talking, presumably so that Sting doesn't have to answer the question of why he's okay with being the tag team champion right now. Right. Like, because there's no... With how good of a guy he's supposed to be, there's no kayfabe explanation you can give as to why Sting would be okay with being the champions the way they want it. Yeah, and I think Bischoff at some point is going to turn to ask him about it, and Lex Luger interrupts him, which is also pretty good. This is, yeah, like I said, this is the best I've ever seen Lex Luger is this promo here. It's amazing that of all the ways he could look the best, it'd be a promo. You know, like that's his (laughs) weakest part of all of his many weak spots. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but out come the Road Warriors to a very nice pop, uh, considering especially that probably barely any of the crowd can actually see who it is coming out. Yeah, it takes a few seconds. You can kind of see them in yeah. the background due to the spikes on their shoulders, but uh, it, it does take a while for them to actually... It's That's another one of the WCW is really awful at blocking for television. Sure. Sting is happy to see these guys and gives them high fives while Luger looks a little more uncertain. Uh, the Road Warriors are teaming together for the first time since, like, 1992, I believe it is. It's been about four years. Mm -hmm. However, they feel like they deserve a title shot. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's the reason for that? I don't know that history. Like, Um, I know Anwell had some kind of back injury. Yeah, so the the short history of it, and I there's so many bios and things to go over in the show, I kind of saved it since they weren't wrestling. Sure. But the condensed version would be uh, that... Hawk became really upset with some of the direction, the creative direction when they were in WWF. Um, specifically, their uh, manager, Paul Ellering, got like a, a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> what was his name? Do you remember? Um, if it comes to one of us, somebody get on Wikipedia. Hawk hated that, so he basically quit. Okay. Uh, Animal stayed to finish out the contractual obligations. Animal was a little more uh, political. You know, he didn't want to burn bridges. So he stayed... Uh, but then Animal ends up with a bad back, and Hawk goes to Japan and spends years in Japan, mm-hmm. then comes to WCW. Uh, after four year, basically four years away from wrestling completely, Animal is healed up enough to make a return, and this is how they reintroduce the character, is okay. by teaming them together in this moment here. It's cool. Uh, Luger rightly points out that there are many other current WCW tag teams that deserve opportunities, including, and this is the first one Luger names, Harlem Heat deserve a rematch. And of course, I love when a heel, uh, everything he's saying is correct, but it's making them look like a big dickhead. Yeah. Like that's, I love when a heel has every reason to be right, 
and yet the crowd is understandably mad at them. It just justifies everything everybody's doing. Uh huh. The yep, crowd, good stuff. The crowd is right to boo because they want to see the best teams take you know their favorite guys. Uh, Luger is right to be mad because what he's suggesting is perfectly reasonable. Although he does uh, include in his list of teams that they should wrestle uh, State Patrol, who is a very rarely seen jobber team of heel cops who mostly appear on the syndicated shows. That's good stuff. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's that's pretty funny. Uh, it's just more Luger being genuinely hilarious in this moment. Hawk takes exception. Oh, do you have the name? Uh, the name was Rocco. Yeah! Rocco, there we go. Hawk takes exception to Luger's uh, trying to dodge the match and cuts a short and frankly very awkward promo. Uh, Hawk is, you know, the talker of these two. And generally I like him, but mm-hmm. this was it was just not good. It seemed very awkward and, like, nervous and just nothing about it worked. His what-a-rush catchphrase is pretty much completely missed uh, as Bischoff just moves the mic away from his face. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever, Hawk. <laughs> the awkwardness continues as Sting and Luger go back to the dressing room, but the Road Warriors just stand there with Bischoff in the aisleway, and they just sort of all side-eye each other, like, just like, you know, it's sort of like when you've got a group of friends and Sting and Luger are, like, the friends that these guys have in common, Yeah. and then they leave and these guys have nothing to say to each other. It's like when Elaine and George have that moment uh, when, like, it's the fir- one of the first times they're hanging out alone, and it's just clear that these yeah. their pairing is awkward. So so Luger, the drunk boyfriend, and Sting, <laughs> the <laughs> uncomfortable girlfriend, yep. they finally leave, yeah. but that was all the entertainment in the party. Right, yeah, no, then everyone realizes they have nothing <laughs> yeah, to say to each other. Yeah, we've all been to that party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the announcers recap the horseman's attack on Paul Orndorff as we go off to a pre-taped interview with Mr. Wonderful himself, and uh, I think we'll play a little bit of that for you now. There's something else on my mind. I'd, I would rather, if you don't mind, I'd rather talk about the Four Horsemen and the reason why I confronted Brian Pillman. I am from the old school where you earn respect, and how you get respect is when you're sucker punched by a 450-pound gorilla. You get knocked down, you get back up, and then you stomp his head into the ground and kick him like he was a football. That's how you get respect. And obviously, the four horsemen don't know what the true meaning of respect is. You see, each one of the horsemen play a role. Brian Pillman's role is to provoke. They knew that I would be the one to come out and to confront Brian Pillman and the four horses. The truth is, you see, and a lot of people don't know this, I was recruited by Arn Anderson and Rick Flair a long time ago about being a four horseman. You see, Brian Pillman would have never been a four horseman if I had chose to be one, they've held this against me ever since I turned them down. And it's quite frankly, I told them, right straight up, man to man, eye to eye, that I wanted no part of a gang. And that's exactly what the four horsemen are. But this whole thing was orchestrated by Flair and Anderson. Have you ever seen Arn Anderson use a pile driver? Have you? Never. You see, because Ric Flair, when he got up on that stage, and when Arn Anderson picked me up, 
and Flair and Arn both came down at the same time. They knew exactly. They knew exactly what the result would be from a spike pile driver. This was no accident. They meant to end my career. The four horsemen may have crippled my body, but they ain't crippled my heart. You see, I'm a very proud man. And I'm proud of who I am. All right. Well, I've gotten the impression from some comments you guys have made or a little head shakes that you guys were not a fan of that segment. <laughs> yeah, he's not a good interview to begin with. And this whole thing, is, or how they stage it or how they shoot it, is so weird because he never looks at the camera. Even though I think there's a couple different camera angles, he manages not to hit at either of them. And it's a promo for a guy that's retiring, basically. And he says that in the promo. I don't I don't get why they even dedicate the time to it, to be honest. And not only that, it's just it's like they gave him as much time as he wanted to talk, and he just keeps going on and on. Like it's almost the longest segment of the show. Yeah, and there's like yeah. a point where he's talking at length about how Arn Anderson in the history of his career never did a pile driver before or something like that. So then when they did the spike pile driver, he knew it was like intentional to hurt him, which obviously it was because it's wouldn't out the on the concrete. Like wouldn't a master of the pile driver, wouldn't that make more sense, you know? I did, it just it just went on and on where it's like you could have explained this in 30 seconds. And he's wearing a terrible 90s shirt. Yeah. Ugh. But it felt like the longest promo ever. Other than the terrible 90s shirt, which I'm on board with, I could not disagree with you guys more. Yes. <laughs> I actually really liked this interview. I thought Orndorff was compelling. Uh yeah, he wasn't looking at the camera, but it was made more like a documentary where he's looking, he's supposedly looking at the interviewer. It wasn't really dedicated to him. He was the one talking, but it was dedicated to the horsemen. It was all about the horsemen, what a violent organization they are, and uh, and his belief that Anderson and Flair are complicit with what Pillman is doing, and that's what he's saying about the pile driver. He's saying, clearly this was something they had planned out ahead of time. They knew specifically what move they were going to do, because it's a devastating move, and it was on the concrete. So they let Pillman piss me off so that then I would get goaded into this attack and they could hurt me. I liked the subtle allusion he had to his fight with Vader. Uh, he mentions that he gained respect. He's like, when a 450-pound gorilla sucker punches you and you beat him down to the floor, that's how you earn respect. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought that was a nice, a very subtle way of like saying to the Smarks, like, this one's for you, you know, without being too overt about it. So, hey, you know what? Uh, agree to disagree on that one. I loved it. I did. I I also did like the fact that they kept the Gary Spivey stuff in there. Yes. And then you saw him at ringside. He's like, all right, wrestling. Yeah, they sort of implied on last night's show that this was going to be chock full of celebrities. The one person we see is Gary Spivey. Yeah. And his uh, fake white afro. Yeah, who they obviously flew into the event. Right. And he did nothing. He pointed, yeah. you know. You know, I uh, saw him at a restaurant maybe five years ago and he just out at a restaurant he wears that big fake white and it was i think it was bigger than the one he's wearing at the show that's the only way i knew it was him because i i had no idea who he was before that i'm at the restaurant and this guy is sitting in a in a booth wearing an all-white suit Mm -hmm. with a big fake white afro and he's with a guy half his age who's wearing all black so like they just contrast each other and i asked the waiter like 
what the fuck is with that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and the waiter says, oh, that's Gary Spivey from the Psychic Friends Network. He eats here like once a week. Mm-hmm. And this is the Ocean Air. That's, not a, that's a ch- uh, not a cheap restaurant. That's pricey. So he's still in today's world, got plenty of money from all that Psychic Friends Network bullshit. He, uh, he actually he shows up on like uh, KDWB a lot. Oh, that's right. That's a local pop station for anyone. Yeah, uh, not yeah. From the so Twin he, Cities area. Yeah. So <laughs> it just when I hear Gary Spivey, it's like it's like local Minnesota like radio psychic. Yeah, we you know on the show we often take pride in our Minnesota guys, uh, but I take no pride <laughs> yeah, in, no. in that fucker Gary Spivey. <laughs> what a weird bastard. <laughs> Back at the Little White Chapel, Mean Gene reports in, standing all of two feet away from a couple that is seemingly in the process of getting married, like, right now. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I don't know why they aren't saying, please go away, we're trying to get married. Gene tells us that there's still no side of the bride or groom, uh, but Robert Parker shows up in a cab, freaking out because he's gambled away all his money, is late to his own wedding, and owes the cabbie $50. (laughs) Parker gets a call on his cell phone, and God, I love seeing cell phones from the like mid to late nineties. Yeah, uh, it's especially funny because he has to pull out the huge antenna, and that like awkwardly bends against his big cowboy hat. <laughs> mm-hmm. He gets a call. He tells uh, Mean Gene that it's from his quote little fried pie, and he tells uh, <laughs> the person on the other end of the phone that he is there. He's going to do it. And she doesn't need to worry about that right now. And uh, that is not uh, expanded upon at this moment. (laughs) This is like the perfect moment for uh, Colonel Robert Parker and his constantly agitated or nervous personality. When actually something, when there is a dilemma, it works really well. Yeah, I really (laughs) like Robert Parker. The segments are are beyond goofy yeah um and probably completely unnecessary but he is a winning personality for and also sure. that's another i think it's another one of the first times we see colonel robert uh, parker up close and is really scarred up forehead. yeah he Yuck. takes his hat off and yeah. it is like a king curtis dusty mm-hmm. Rhodes level of forehead it yeah. is bad Gross. Uh-huh. back from commercial pillman comes out with his uh beautiful cane and a james dean t-shirt with of course a single boob cut out yep <laughs> He rattles the guardrail at ringside uh, like an angry monkey at the zoo. (laughs) Like he's just like, you know, just pissed at people for watching him. Out next is his opponent, Eddie Guerrero. In the ring, they circle each other until Pillman takes exception to something he hears from the crowd. And he goes back outside to jaw jack with uh, some hecklers. Almost falls over the top rope, too. Yes, he does. Uh, Back in the ring, Pillman raises an arm to challenge Eddie to a test of strength. But uh, when Eddie reaches out, Pillman instead smooths his hair, which I think is something he borrowed from Flair. Plus, like, my uncle when I was a kid. (laughs) 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 Pillman keeps shoving four fingers in Eddie's face, leading to an angry shoving match between the two of them. Pillman goes down and rolls back out of the ring. He stalks around on the outside and wanders right behind the announce table. Uh, He takes the opportunity to kind of shove Tony's head a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> and in a bit of unintentional foreshadowing, uh, Shivani tells the brain next time to get between them. <laughs> Back in the ring, Eddie hits a shoulder block and a drop kick, and once again, Pillman goes to the outside. Eddie goes to the top rope looking for a plancha, but instead, Pillman has decided to get behind Heenan and start pulling on his jacket. Uh, Heenan, it's important to know, has suffered some serious neck problems in, in the past, and he doesn't know exactly what Pillman's doing. This isn't something that's been cleared with him. And uh, let's let's hear what Bobby has to say 
live on national television. Watch out. Flying Brian tumbles on the outside, almost in our lap here. And Eddie. Wait a minute. No, no, wait. wait. Easy, no. Easy. What the fuck are you doing? Easy. So there you have it. Uh, that's probably what this uh, whole clash of the champions is most famous for. Is uh, that moment right yeah, there? Yeah, without question, really. So Heenan, right after that, puts his headset down and he paces around, mm-hmm. clearly very angry. Yeah, like he is—he's clearly quite upset. He walks towards the back, like he's just going to quit the show. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you know, but before that, the the cameras got on his back, and he shouts something, and you can only see his back. But it certainly looks like what you would look like from behind if you were shouting the word fuck. Yeah. Like, it might not be. Who knows? But Mm -hmm. he clearly yells something. He then starts walking towards the back like he's just quitting the show, as I said. Pillman and Eddie are just kind of standing around in the ring just watching this. Because, like, this is all unscripted. Uh, You know, Sullivan says on his podcast that that Pillman told him he was going to rib Bobby. That this was something Pillman had planned out to do ahead of time. I don't know if I believe that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Pillman DVD, when Bischoff and Sullivan talk a little bit about how you know they were in on the Pillman stuff the whole time with the loose cannon character and some of the antics, Teddy Long says outright that he thinks they're both lying, yeah. that they had no idea what Pillman was doing, um, and they only later claim they did, so they didn't look so fucking dumb with the way they handled some of it. Yeah, um, when you were saying about the two wrestlers in the ring, to yeah. me, it appeared that Pillman was ready to just kind of go back to the match, whereas Eddie looked like the one that was like, I think, we, I think we need to wait to make sure he's okay. Yeah, he looked pretty pissed. Not only that, but I think Eddie is is pissed by, I mean, even before that, Pillman is just going to the outside mm-hmm. and yelling at the crowd. He's sort of starting the match and then just going back outside. Yeah. Like, even regardless of the Heenan stuff, I think Eddie is like legitimately like, what the fuck is up with Pillman? Especially because Pillman at this time, as we mentioned on last night's show, he's deliberately trying to work the boys. He's trying to convince everyone, mm-hmm. uh, potentially alongside Bischoff, if Bischoff's to be believed, uh, that he's trying to work everyone into convincing them that he really is this unhinged. So from Eddie's perspective, Pillman is legitimately being like a crazy asshole, and he's got to be wondering like, do I put my body in this guy's care? You know, like what kind of match can I have with a guy doing this kind of shit? Sure. And, and like I mentioned uh, for on yesterday's podcast, um, whereas for television watching, yeah, it, it works really well, but you could tell that the opponent is like, it's not a fun experience. Right. Trying yeah. to figure out what to do, especially since they're cruiserweight. So they're again, there's guys with like, it's all about timing and everything like that. Yeah. And Brian Pillman's like, deliberately breaking any timing at every instance. Right. So I I, I don't blame Malenko from Monday or Eddie Guerrero for both getting like, agitated by him. Yeah, on paper, this should have been by far the best match on the show, but it's lousy. Yeah, they had a great Nitro match. Like, we've seen what these two can do when yeah. they feel like, yeah. or when both, I should say, when both <laughs> men feel like having a great match. Yeah. Anyway, Bobby eventually settles down and comes back uh, to the announcing desk and, and let's hear what he had to say are you back with us here i'd like to apologize if i said anything i shouldn't have off power or anything but i mean I, the, the man was going for my neck he was going I, I was i was concerned for my own well-being he's a loose cannon he'll turn on anybody 
And if I said something I should have, I apologize. I, I, I don't think, I think saying he's a loose cannon is maybe putting it mildly here. Into the midsection. So I, I kind of take two things away from that. Uh, first is, I think he's trying to apologize in a way that leaves the possibility open that maybe no one heard him. Because <laughs> right. he keeps saying, if I said anything objectionable, I apologize. Yeah. He knows that he said fuck. Yeah. He means, if you heard me say fuck, I'm sorry. Yeah. If not, let's just pretend that never happened. Right. Uh, but it also, the other thing that kind of sticks with me, it sounds like a man like begging to keep his job. Like, mm-hmm. holy shit, I know that was serious. I'm really quite sorry, uh, but I have a bad neck in this guy. I didn't know what he was doing. And, you yeah. know, uh, the most amazing thing he does is once he's calmed down and come back, he right away starts putting over Pillman and the Pillman character again. Yeah. He is right back into it once he, like, gets his nerves settled. I, I would say all things considered that I, I think that Bobby Heenan did a really good job recovering from this. Yes. Because, I mean, like you said, clearly there was a point, like, even to, to when he actually stopped in the aisle, you were I was positive, like, he was going to leave. It really seemed like he was. Yeah. And when he, when he stopped and turned around, it's like he know he's he's a professional. He knows he should go back and continue the job. And then he goes back and he says everything he should say. Yeah. Like this is why I overreacted. I apologize. And his this character is just and he does what he can to use the situation to put over the character too. Right. Which is something he's really really good at. And and I just thought like. You know, because if you didn't know Brian Pillman was doing that, why is he taking your jacket off? Like, right. what is going on? Yeah, I, I would have been like, what? I would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? It's a it's a human reaction. Yeah, and uh, and I don't think you can fault him too much for that. Certainly. Right. Meanwhile, in the ring, Pillman's been spending most of that time trying to get Eddie to shake his hand. <laughs> uh, Eddie finally does, but then Eddie actually, I mean, you expect Pillman to play the heel, but Eddie is actually the one who kicks Pillman in the gut a few times before nailing some chops. A tilt-a-whirl backbreaker from Eddie, uh, and he is fired up, and I think he's fired up simply because he's trying to salvage a match out of this. Yeah. He's like, there, I did some wrestling moves, and I yelled at the crowd to get him fired up, like, can we please wrestle each other? Pillman uses the ref uh, for cover as he fights back in with some kicks before biting Eddie right on the nose. Brian uh, chokes Eddie on the mat and laughs into the camera while he does so. Pillman then works a, a headlock for a while for a little rest spot, not that they've been working incredibly hard, uh, but Eddie manages to finally fight out of it and hit another drop kick. A second drop kick sends Pillman to the outside for the billionth time this match, <laughs> uh, but this time there are no antics. He, he pretty much gets back in right away. After some back-and-forth action, they wind up in a corner where Eddie hits a tornado DDT for two, uh, which should have been for none because Pillman's foot is clearly under the ropes. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> Good on you, Andy Anderson. Pillman fights back into things and gets his own two count uh, by just kind of tripping Eddie and putting his feet up on the ropes. He bitches to Randy Anderson, which gives Eddie the chance to try a roll-up, but that only gains a two count. Off the ropes, then, Eddie does a leapfrog, uh, but on the way back, Pillman gets a flying crossbody and a handful of tights for the kind of out-of-nowhere one, two, three. I I didn't really like the match, I guess. It was all... Pillman antics and very little match. Yeah. And uh, I like Pillman, and I think some of the stuff he did was, like, very revolutionary. Um, but this is only getting over Brian Pillman. Mm-hmm. This is completely at the expense of the of the show, of Guerrero, of Heenan, of, like, the idea of wrestling itself. 
in a way. Like yeah. it just is putting over Pillman, and and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I I get like the whole you know he's like sort of like breaking the fourth wall in like is this real or is this not? But yeah, um, despite that, I I found that like I found the whole thing to be just really unprofessional. Yeah, um, th- to the point where it's like. You could do antics and stuff like that, but still, you're there. Your point, the point is to entertain, and not just yourself. <laughs> I I could have stood all these antics in a twenty minute match, mm-hmm. but this is something like a seven minute match. Yeah, you know. So if if m- more than half of it is you wandering around outside and yelling at people, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm of of two minds because I do like the loose cannon stuff and and the way it bends reality, but. This was just too much. Not not an appropriate time. I, I or uh, like the the proportion of bullshit was too high. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this to me, he um he seemed like he was just being really irresponsible because I I'm under the impression that he was probably drunk or high out of his mind on that because I don't think and I might I, be wrong, but yeah. I don't think that started until after the car crash. Yeah. Well. Oh, maybe. I mean, I, I think to a degree, almost all the guys, especially ones that are as muscular as he is, are on you know some oh, combination sure. of pain pillars and muscle relaxers and all that. It, it seemed like he had the one good idea to kind of taunt the crowd, and then he did it for like three minutes in a row. And it, it, it just, in at this point of his career, he's, I think, the most interesting character on the show, but his matches are awful. Because it's all about getting that character over, and to, I don't know. To me, he seemed like he was not a hundred percent there. Either that, or that he could was be, but really, really al- into the character, and like Dave said, did it at the expense of absolutely everything else on the show. Right. Yeah. It either could be that he wasn't all there, or he did a fantastic job portraying a guy who wasn't all there. Yeah. Um, which I guess is part of what makes it compelling. I mean. Whether whether or not we approve, I don't think any of us could argue that it did make for somewhat compelling. Like you do, there's an element of I don't like what this guy's doing. What is he going to do next? Yeah. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I, I get that part of it. Uh, he Pillman then to leave the ring, he like slides out, and I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but he's kind of close to the announcer table where he slides out, and Heenan wants nothing to do with him. So this time, like before Pillman's really even close. He's just got up out of his chair and is yeah. like walking away, keeping like three feet between them at all times. No, the the idea, the impression I got was that he was trying to do like the quick like sliding out of the ring because he got got away with the cheap trick, and he just happened to be in a yeah, cause place he, by you, the table. You could tell after a few seconds he's like, oh wait, there's that table there, and then he flipped over to the other side. So yeah, was, and he leaves without incident. He doesn't like yeah. notice Bobby and start fucking with him again. He just leaves. He might he may realize that uh, Bobby was upset. We then go to Bischoff, who is standing in the aisle. He predicts that we're going to get a rubber match between those two, since they're now uh, in televised matches one and one. He's also pretending to like hold an earpiece in his ear, like he's a kid pretending he's a news anchor. <laughs> like he might have an earpiece in his ear, but he's definitely exaggeratingly holding it in his ear, like right. I've just got a report, you know, yeah. blah, that kind of thing. Bischoff gets us real excited to see the champion. Uh, that by, re- by reminding us that prior to the match with Flair, Macho Man had nothing going for him. <laughs> wow. That sounds like a great champion I can't wait to see. He introduces the world fucking champion, but of course Hulk Hogan's with him, so they come out to Hulk Hogan's music. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anyone makes as big a deal of wrestling fans 
as like stuff like entrance music. It's it it shouldn't be as important as it is. Yeah. I doubt the wrestlers care whose music they're coming out to, but it drives me crazy that kind of stuff. He's mm. the world champion. Let it be his theme. God damn it. And not only that, but when they're when he's introducing Hulk Hogan, he makes sure to mention that he's the former world heavyweight champion. <laughs> right. Yes. And it takes away a lot of the steam of of Randy Savage being champion. And they did that before, too. The last time Savage was champion, he teamed up with Hogan, and he made sure to mention that Hogan was a former world champion, and also Savage is there, who actually has the belt. (laughs) (laughs) Macho is once again in the red and yellow to match uh, Hogan, and certainly not the other way around. Although, I guess in some defense, Macho doesn't have like a defined color that Hogan even could match. Yeah. Kevin Green is also out with them, and I think at least part of the mixed reaction these guys all get is that plenty of people hate the Steelers. Yeah, uh, and, right. and this is the mid-90s. The Cowboys were truly America's team at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, there's probably not a ton of native uh, Dallasians in the crowd. But if you're going to take a neutral third party and say the Cowboys are playing the Steelers in 1996, mm-hmm. I think most people are going to come down on the, the Cowboys side of that coin. Right. Hogan starts off by saying that they have all the momentum on their side. Macho puts over Kevin Green, and they all, oh, yeah, uh, including Kevin Green. Mm -hmm. Hogan then asks Green what he'll do if the filthy, stinky, wart-infested giant sneaks (laughs) up on him. And Green does uh, a decent little promo uh, on how he'd run right through the giant like the Steelers are going to do to the Cowboys on Sunday. Yeah, Um, You know, for for a NFL player – Coming into this world, I thought the promo was actually fine. Yeah. Um, I do think it's funny that the Steelers actually trailed the entire game and lost 27-17 to, <laughs> to the uh, Cowboys. So Green, would uh, that prediction would not run true. Although, I guess uh, in, in consolation, he did get a Super Bowl ring in 2011 as linebacker coach for the Packers. I, I also dislike the fact that uh, WCW, of course, brings a guy that ends up being the runner-up. Right, <laughs> runner-up WCW. It would only be funnier if the Steelers' starting quarterback was on Raw like the next <laughs> week. <laughs> Hulkster reminds us that Liz is going to be in their corner. Hogan says that the only problem for their team is going to be figuring out which of them is going to take Liz out in the town tonight. Yeah, this got a little weird. Well, uh, Hogan, you're married to one of her friends. <laughs> who's who's at the show? <laughs> Liz has already uh, divorced the controlling and emotionally, if not physically abusive macho man. <laughs> oh, So I think, I think Kevin Green might have the easiest time bringing yeah, well, her out in the I town. I love Hogan's line uh, towards the end. He's oh, like, we'll, we'll get there. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you deliver it. I just okay. want to cover the stuff before it. Uh, Green basically says, like, yeah, I'm going to take Liz out. Uh, Randy warns him that Liz is a tough woman. And then, uh, John, why don't you tell us what and Hogan's Hogan say. says something like, yeah, she was way too much woman for you to handle. And Randy Savage is like, yup. And yeah. then they leave. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> it's like a real kick in the balls insult. Yeah. And Machu Man's just like, yeah, she was <laughs> and, too much woman And then they leave. Me. <laughs> he acts. It's almost like it's a compliment instead of a really shitty thing for your friend to say to you. It's Especially so- because a lot of people think that um, outside of the ring, like Hogan was a big reason why those two got divorced. Yeah, I, I actually, it sounds like it was Linda Hogan was a big reason. Okay. Um, she she became friends with Liz and I think was like, he does what to you? Like in reference <laughs> to like locking sure. her in the house and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Liz kind of got the balls to walk away. But that certainly was a cause of friction between these two. 
that Hogan isn't afraid to use as a wrestling storyline towards his own tag team partner. <laughs> God almighty. We go to a commercial, and as we come back, uh, Lord Stephen Regal and Earl Robert Eaton, or the Earl of Eaton, whatever they're calling him, they come out with no sign of Jeeves or Squire David Taylor. Sting and Luger uh, come out walking right fucking next to each other. So leave them alone. <laughs> let's, yeah, John, you may. You, let's we put were, this shit to rest. We've been complaining about how uh, if they come out to separate music, the announcers complain. If they come out to the same music, but they're like 10 feet apart, the announcers uh-huh. complain. This time they're walking right next to each other. Sweet. Yeah. So And plus Bischoff's not announcing the show. So for once, yeah. their tag team chemistry peaked at this point. Yeah. No, because I because I mentioned last time, it's like they re- they need to like be literally holding hands, skipping to the ring, and this is like this is as close as you could get. I also thought uh, it was interesting. Speaking of entrance music, they come out to Luger's music rather than a man called Sting. Whoa! Yeah, that's uh, just an interesting little thing to know. After another commercial, we come back and they are in the ring getting ready to go. Regal uh, flexes and like does that thing where he you push your fat on your arm <laughs> up so it looks like a bicep. Yeah. <laughs> Sting mimes like he's got a pair of binoculars to try to see these little muscles. Uh-huh. Sting then bows to Regal mockingly, and the camera cuts to a close-up of Regal's face, which is always funny because yep. his facial reactions are hilarious. Sting then does something to pop the crowd like huge and we don't see what it is because we're on regal's face the whole time (laughs) but i almost am glad that we don't see it because you get to see regal's face go from like scandalized to like hurt to disgusted to angry (laughs) like just this flash of hilarious emotions (laughs) within a couple second span it's whatever sting did could not possibly be as funny as just watching Regal react to what Sting did. It's kind of like old horror movies when they wouldn't show the monster. Right. And you just get a nightmare <laughs> thinking about what the monster looked like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, man, just like going back on these old nitros, Lord Steven Regal is just a delight. Absolutely. To and, watch. And he's someone uh, that I used to not like very much when he first joined WWF, because that's when I watched when yeah. I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... Frankly, I just always thought his body was kind of gross. It's like Bob Backlund. I always hated Backlund because I thought his body was gross. Mm -hmm. And it was only later when I realized the genius of the characters uh, and certainly how great he is at wrestling. As I've gotten older, I've appreciated him. But at the time, he was like changed the channel for me. (laughs) I was was wrong. I was a wrong, wrong. I was going to say little boy, but I was in high school. So that's a weird thing to call myself. (laughs) Little girl. (laughs) 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 sting and regal lock up and trade wrist locks and the crowd is hot for this one probably the hottest they've been in general i would say that the crowd seems a little cheered out from last night sure uh they were a lot hotter on nitro than they have been throughout this show and in their defense they they got like a lot more like interesting stuff that's true they had title changes and yeah yeah stinger works a side headlock uh then hits a shoulder block and gets another headlock he avoids a hip toss attempt by Regal and drop kicks him. A dazed Regal then wanders over into the wrong corner and Lex just punches him in the head. <laughs> Sting then boxes his ears and Regal sells this like he has inner ear damage and can't balance. And it's so goddamn funny. Uh, Sting then like just decides to get into it and challenges him to put up his dukes like Duchess of Queensberry, like old 1920s style. Yeah. Regal sells the dizziness brought on by the ear damage and uses a rope to study himself as he walks over and tags in uh, the Earl of Eaton. 
Sting tags in Lex and Eaton quickly dumps him out to the floor. Uh, Bobby asks Shivani who he thinks is going to win the Super Bowl. Tony says that he doesn't know, but he knows who he'd like to win. And Bobby very quickly comes in with, yeah, but Cobb County Barber College isn't playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and Shivani just laughs at that because it's way too good a line. Like, Shivani's got nothing on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cobb County Barber? That's just hilarious. <laughs> Eaton heads to the outside and makes the mistake of trying to bum rush Luger, who hits a back body drop onto the concrete. And this time it truly is the concrete, not the gym mats. Yeah. Luger carries Eaton uh, back into the ring and flexes at him while Eaton is, like, terrified of his muscles. <laughs> He's just scared. Eaton tags in Regal. Luger powers Regal into a corner, and Regal starts shouting, unhand me, which is hilarious. <laughs> to shout in the middle of a wrestling match. <laughs> But as Nick Patrick uh, separates the two, Regal, like, hits a cheap shot over Nick Patrick's back. Oh. (laughs) Regal now presses the attack in a corner as he hits Luger with a series of European uppercuts. Eaton gets tagged in and hits a swinging neckbreaker. Eaton and Regal then start tagging in and out repeatedly, taking turns beating on Luger until Eaton uh, hits his flying knee drop, which is, uh, I guess, his new finisher that he's just kind of started using. Was it the Tower of London? Tower or yeah, I don't think it has a name yet. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Regal comes because his old his old one was named after like whatever state he's from. The, the Alabama. Alabama Jam. Yeah, that uh, was it. Top rope leg drop. Yeah, so they had to switch it up. They could have just renamed it, but instead they also switched it to a, a knee drop. Uh. Probably because a flying leg drop uh, is just hell on your back and hips, and probably all the parts of you. <laughs> <laughs> Regal then comes in and applies the Regal stretch, but Sting breaks it up. Eaton tags in and comes off the top rope again, but Luger catches him, kind of, and both men just sort of fall down backwards. Back on their feet, they collide off the ropes and go down again, and Patrick starts the standing 10 count. Luger is up to his feet first and makes the hot tag to Sting. Sting comes in and cleans house, uh, but when he focuses on Regal, Eaton goes up to the top rope. Regal, though, gets knocked into the ropes, and Eaton falls off, colliding with Regal comically, knocking him to the floor, and giving Sting the chance to lock in the Scorpion Deathlock to finish the match. (laughs) Uh, Very formulaic tag match, really, Um, but just the charisma of the performers involved, namely Regal and Sting. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Charisma isn't exactly Eaton or even Luger's. um, Although, like I said, I'm hot for Luger right now. <laughs> Just hot for Luger. I got it bad, got it bad, got it bad. I'm hot for Luger. Um, uh, but the crowd, I mean, the crowd is hot for Luger. And, and when a crowd is digging somebody, you dig them more than you would normally, you know? Also, this is when I, um, I think this is the first, like, full-on Blue Bloods match we've had so far. And you could kind of tell that, that Robert Ian's kind of learning from Stephen Regal, like how to, like just how to act in the ring, right, and how to like sell just by ex- expressions. So I just thought I thought it was because like Lord Stephen Regal is like teaming with like the most like Southern American person. <laughs> yes, yeah. But he, I feel like Robert Ian really sells the character really. I well. agree. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Back at the wedding chapel, Harlem and Heat are in front of the uh, buffet table which is, as Dave mentioned uh, early in the show, it's set up outside. Uh, and it's it's kind of not spelled out quite right, but basically because the colonel doesn't, he gambled away all his money, mm-hmm. he can't afford the inside wedding, <laughs> so they're going to have to use the drive through window now. 
Uh, so it's not it's not explained particularly well, but that's why that's the explanation as to why this is all being done outside. Heat are complaining about the lack of hot wings and neck bones. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry finally <laughs> arrives, and Sherry Martell is wasted drunk, <laughs> I, or on pills or something. Right. She is slurring her words badly throughout this entire... All sweaty for no reason. Yeah. I mean, Hair's this was, all unkempt. This was pre-taped. Like, <laughs> this was the best they could get out of her, you know? That's, like, why they had a pre-tape. She arrives, and the colonel explains that he's gambled his money away. She seems upset at first, but then she's too drunk to remember she's supposed to be upset. Yeah. So she's like, okay, well, I'll just go change in here, in the referring to the limo she just showed up in. Which is also funny because she should be mad that she has to change in a limo because that actually comes up later. Mm-hmm. But she just forgets it for a moment. And uh, so instead she just like turns on a dime and goes back to being upset because like something in her mind triggers and is like, oh wait, no, mad. I'm supposed to be mad. Yeah. Uh, Parker suggests she gets dressed in Buck and Slater's trailer. Uh, but those two <laughs> dum-dums say they've locked their keys in there and can't get in. <laughs> and apparently there's a dog in there that they say they've been hearing. <laughs> So Sherry then flips out. She's pissed. You know, the wedding's ruined, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, because <laughs> she's supposed to be pissed and everything, but she's also seems a little bit, like, flirtatious, too, which is, <laughs> which is like you said, is probably when I realize I'm like, I think she's, like, kind of hammered. Oh, drunk. yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first segment, I was like, she seems drunk, and then in the one we'll get to in a little bit, when she talks a little more, I was like, holy shit, she's wasted. <laughs> As we come back to the show, Bischoff is in the aisle and he plugs the CompuServe chat. <laughs> well, we see the world's funniest footage of Jimmy Hart supposedly backstage chatting on a laptop. Oh, God. He's yeah. overacting so hard. Yeah. He's doing that thing where when you pretend to type, you type way faster and just like wait, just like obviously just gobbledygook. Yeah. Uh, and he's also talking the entire time. And making these huge facial expressions. When I watched this when I was a kid, I had no idea what online chats were. Oh, sure. I was like, is there video for that or something? <laughs> he's like, one second he's laughing, the next whatever he read is shocked, and the next is like, he's angry. Like, he just is like, there's no way you could read things that fast. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> It's like he's he's typing by facial expressions because <laughs> there's like such a variety. And like you said, it's such a variety, but it's like bipolar pretty much. I, I know that people even in this day could do a bad job of pretending to be on a computer, but this is clearly like it's 1995. Jimmy Hart's probably never used a computer yeah. and he just doesn't know what you do on them. So they're <laughs> like, I don't know. You just chat to people and he just does a, a insane baboon-like facsimile of what he thinks that is. Yeah. It's bonkers. Well, that's what you get when you try to get wrestlers who are more like circus performers try to be like TV actors. Yeah, he's playing to the back row in like a tight shot on just him. (laughs) (laughs) It it that might be my favorite thing we've watched during this entire podcast is Jimmy Hart (laughs) pretending to use a computer. God, that's funny. I just like how this particular show, as it progresses, since they've had, like, an extra night in Vegas. Yeah. Why there seems to be, like, more where people that ha- are, like, questionably either, like, <laughs> wasted or, like, a, or like doped up or something like that. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, after that, Bischoff brings Brian Pillman out for a promo, and uh, let's hear what Flying Brian's got to say. He's the uh, loose cannon. 
of the Four Horsemen. Let's bring out now Brian Pillman. Brian, I'd like to know. No, I'm not no. nervous. I'm not nervous at all. Hey, it should be. Live TV, Eric. What if I rifle off the seven right here, right now? Not the seven deadly sins. Not the seven vials of God's wrath. But the seven words you're not Don't allowed even to think say about it. Don't on TV. What are you going to do then, Eric? I'll do whatever I have to do. No, no you won't do anything. You'll be. Get a <laughs> But don't worry, Eric. Seems like Mr. Wonderful has made tonight's subject respect. Something you can't buy, something you can't sell, something you can't steal. You've got to earn it. Respect. It's what pumps the ice water through the horsemen's black hearts. It's what causes a man like Double A to smack me across the face. And the greed and the quest of respect is what makes a man like Kevin Sullivan mad with greed. Yeah, you're right, Eric. I'm not Hogan. I'm not Savage. I'm not Sting. I'm Brian Bellman, and don't you ever forget it. And I have a dream, and that is to teach you and everybody else respect, and I'll do whatever it takes, even if I gotta hack your thumbs off. Easy, Pillman, easy, Pillman. You are treading thin, thin ice. More action on the Clash of the Champions. So, uh, what do you guys make of that? Let's see if we're we're agreement on this one. Or um, not. I I feel like the whole thing was like let's bring him out for some shock value statements. Yeah, I think the idea of the character is still cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ex the execution is kind of sloppy. Like he obviously wanted to do the seven words thing, but I don't think that the audience really reacted to it very much. Yeah, he and, tried to do it a second time, and, and and Bischoff really wasn't like catching on to that either. Yeah, like yeah, I I agree. Um. Hillman's done some great promos and this just this one just doesn't click I don't know if he was thrown off because he got backstage and maybe got reamed out a little bit for the Heenan thing Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe that threw him off a bit but he's capable of so much more than this I was really disappointed boy do I like that he puts on that same ratty looking shirt he had earlier (laughs) and he's got tie-dyed Zubas on too (laughs) wow yeah because I um the promo that always sticks out to me is the is the one where he's talking about um, all the pe- different people that want to join the dungeon. The one where Hogan is trying to be evil, but right? Like, yeah. But the Horsemen at, in their hearts are evil, and he's shown that like he could do like a really great promo. That was a great promo. Yeah, he could do a really great promo. He could do a great promo with this character. I just feel like he's just so focused on trying to be shocking that he loses like any sort of semblance of like why is he out there like what's he there to talk about right after another commercial uh psychosis comes out he is a luchador wearing like a crazy mask sort of like a jushin thunder liger where it's got like horns and a big shaggy brown wig on it mm-hmm. i think it's a wig what do you guys think? i always thought that was his hair but it might be if it I is don't. i'm impressed because <laughs> there's a lot of it 
I'm Have you never seen him unmasked? No. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, he's got that same sort of hair. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tony and Brain are obviously unqualified to call this match, so Uber nerd Mike Tanay is going to be joining them on commentary. <laughs> also, uh, Psychosis looks like a guy that, like, he needs, like, the outfit on because he looks like he has, like, no body He's mass. very skinny. He's very young and skinny at this point. Yeah. Uh, a bio on Mike Tanay is going to have to wait for a future episode because we've got already a lot on this show, uh, including that of Psychosis, who was born Dionisio Castellanos Torres in Baja, California. He is a mere 24 years old here in 1996. Uh, I don't have a lot of backstory uh, on him that I was able to find other than he was trained by Rey Mysterio and Rey's brother. He's wrestled in Mexico for AAA and had three very highly acclaimed matches with Rey Mysterio and ECW during November of 1995, or last year in terms of our timeline. He is a very frequent opponent of uh, future WCW luchadors La Parca and Juventud Guerrera, and he also has been feuding like off and on with Conan pretty much their whole career. They actually attended wrestling camp together, so they're, they're they're very familiar with each other. Conan, who we saw uh, show up last night and say that he was going to be defending his Mexican heavyweight title, Mm -hmm. he comes out in a weird yellow, like, Spider-Man design muumuu thing. I don't know what to call it. I don't know. It just just reminded me of whatever he wore when he was Max Moon. Sure. In WWF. Do they make kind of a veiled reference to that during this match? Because they mentioned something about how he last showed up in the early 90s. No, no, I'll actually talk about okay. what the, I know what you're talking about. Conan is Charles Ashinoff, born in Santiago, Cuba, but raised in Miami, Florida. Uh, uh, he was a troubled teenager who dealt drugs and wound up in legal trouble, choosing eventually to join the military over going to jail. After spending four years in the Navy, Navy during which time he trained as a boxer, he moved to San Antonio uh, and did a lot of boxing and bodybuilding before eventually getting into wrestling after meeting a local promoter. His training took him to Tijuana, where he particularly fell in love with the Lucha style. Uh, He trained alongside, as I mentioned, Psychosis and Rey Mysterio, and debuted in Mexico in 1987. He joined the uh, Empresa Mexicana de Lucha Libre, also known as EMLL, which soon became CMLL, which it still is to this day, uh, Consejo Mundial de Lucha Libre, and I'm terribly sorry with, I'm sure, the butchering of that, that I did, but that's the best I got where he got the Conan moniker, as in, obviously, Conan the Barbarian. In mm-hmm. fact, he was called, like, Conan el Barbero or Barbary. I forget what it is exactly, but they dropped that eventually, though. He and Mysterio appeared as a tag team in WCW at the 1990 edition of Starcade, which featured an international tag team tournament. So that's what they were referring Sebi to Ray before. Sebi Mysterio Sr. then, right? No, I believe Junior. Because wouldn't he be, like, 10 at that time or something yeah when he shows up in 96 he's like 19 or 20 years old. oh so okay well then it, yeah so yeah, it must I, be okay. senior that trained him then oh okay. he trained with junior yeah he trained with yeah that's what i meant okay when okay I said, that makes sense uh, but you're right you're right that the math doesn't add up for him to be there in 90 uh they the team of conan and mysterio made it to the semifinals, but lost to the eventual cup winners the steiner brothers he lost his mask in a match against pero aguayo jr who is a Mexican heel legend, who's the guy who died uh, in the ring against Rey Mysterio last year. You may remember hearing that story. Yep. And in 1991, Conan became the first ever CMLL heavyweight champion, though it should be noted that in CMLL, uh, that's not the top belt. 
because most of the guys are not heavyweights. In 1992, Conan was part of an exodus of wrestlers from CMLL to the Assistencia Assessoria e Administración, or AAA. Mm. There you go. <laughs> also in 1992, Conan would have a brief run in WWF as Max Moon, a futuristic cyborg character created by Conan himself, who came out in this, like, insane circuitry bedecked outfit costume armor thing that was, he was co- like a neon ribbed condom basically <laughs> is what his costume looked like it was terrible yeah and it had like guns in the arms that shot streamers and sparkles <laughs> into the crowd apparently it cost wwf thirteen thousand dollars to make what <laughs> so they were considerably unhappy when conan just started no showing his dates because he was becoming quite a big deal in Mexico. Yeah. So it just he was getting paid a lot more. He was a lot famous, a lot higher on the card. Mm-hmm. So he just sort of started not no-showing. Uh, after an argument with McMahon, Conan quit WWF after only three televised appearances. WWF tried the Max Moon gimmick with another worker, uh, but it failed to catch on and was very quickly shelved. So that was a major investment down the drain. And certainly, of all the people they've they've mended fences with, they've never had Conan back in any capacity. Right. In an April of 93, he lost a two out of three falls retirement match at the very first Triple Mania event in front of 48,000 fans, which to that point was the biggest wrestling event in Mexico ever. Uh, just to give you some idea of how big of a deal. If it sounds like I'm going way on and on about him compared to some of some others, it's to just get the idea across that he's a major star mm-hmm. in one country prior to coming to WCW. Uh, obviously, despite losing that match, he did not retire and continued to compete in AAA. Around 94, 95, he actually became their booker, and uh, he appeared a few times for ECW in 95 as well. Eventually, he left AAA to found his own promotion, uh, Promo Azteca, but it never really got off the ground because uh, he joined WCW being promised that he would be like a featured, you know, he wouldn't be Max Moon. He'd be Conan. Yeah. He'd be a big deal. Uh, so when those commitments started taking off, he, he folded the promotion. I, I didn't get the impression that it ever really even ran any big events or anything. He is not the Mexican heavyweight champion. Uh, he, at this time, Dave, you looked into this, but he was the AAA heavyweight champion, but I don't know if he is at this very moment or not. No, um, the impression I got, because I, I tried to do as much research as I could, yeah. and it seems like there's not a definitive answer, but the most popular answer is that um, this championship was for the International Wrestling All-Stars promotion, okay, which was uh, a title that would defen- eventually be decided on the 26th of that week. Um, so, so three days from now? Three days from this show. Yeah. yeah. So the impression people got was that, that Conan, in order to look more impressive, already had the belt itself, so he brought that with him and claimed it to be the Mexican heavyweight title to give himself more prestige upon his debut. And he has been the heavyweight champion in both of Mexico's major organizations. Yeah. Um, so I guess it makes sense. The only thing is, like, we've already got the heavyweight title, the U.S. title, uh, the television title, we don't – it's like the European championship in WWF. It was always like one too many championships yeah. when the European title was around. It's it's a lazy way of booking. Like, you need to come up with reasons for guys to fight other than a third-tier belt. Not only was Conan brought into WCW to compete as a wrestler, but he was also uh, very specifically hired to bring in more luchadors with the thought being that since he was huge in Mexico but also spoke fluent English, having been raised in America – that he would be the perfect guy to bridge that gap between the two. Uh, 
but there's some flaws with this plan, namely that he is a wrestler, so he's going to be looking out for himself with the normal carny attitude that a lot of these guys have. Mm -hmm. And also, he booked a territory in Mexico, so a lot of these guys have bad blood because people always resent the boss for one reason or another, especially when he's picking some guys who are going to have to lose. Uh, In Bischoff's book, he says of Conan, Conan was probably the worst person I could have chosen as a liaison because he had his own agenda, but he was popular, well-respected wrestler in Mexico. So Bischoff even kind of cites this as a mistake that he made in his tenure. Yeah, Yeah. though it would be hard to see uh, or hard to imagine the Cruiserweight division being much better than it was. I mean, they got a lot of the luchadors in, so by hook or by crook, it seems like it worked out. I mean, maybe it's one of the reasons why WCW never got bigger in Mexico despite several attempts, I know. Sure. But it, and it seems like that the impact of Conan overall was positive since they since the guys that they got as a result like completely changed the landscape of WSW as far as cruiserweight wrestling is concerned. Conan starts off the match by arm dragging Psychosis right out of the ring. Psychosis runs back in, but Conan comes off the top rope with another like fancy lucha arm drag. Tanay tells us that Conan is a powerful mat based guy, while Psychosis is going to be looking for high risk, high flying offensive moves. As Psychosis runs past Conan, Conan kicks him basically in the butt. I think it's supposed to be the back of the leg because it's meant to like look like he's tripping Psychosis. Mm-hmm. But Psychosis does a real cool like flip bounce off the ropes where since he's tripping, he hits the top rope like with his legs and then uses that momentum to flip backwards onto his feet. Yeah. It's really it's it's a pretty impressive. It uh, looks cool. They get a really bad angle on it, though, that yes. makes it look kind of cartoonish. Conan turns a hammerlock into something kind of resembling a Koji clutch, but Psychosis gets a rope break. Conan hits two very nice uh, German suplexes and then hits like what's basically a slingshot, but he doesn't l- let go. So Psychosis keeps falling straight forward face first onto the mat. Yeah. Uh, he Conan then turns this into a submission, but Psychosis gets to the ropes again. They then trade submission holds as Shivani plugs uh, the hotline and says that there are messages from Bischoff about the billionaire Ted skits. Uh, and yesterday uh, on our Nitro episode, I actually recapped that message from Bischoff and kind of what he had to say. Conan gets a wrist lock and balances along the top rope before hitting another fancy arm drag. Luchadors <laughs> love arm drags. Yeah. And they're weird from Conan because he's the bigger, stronger guy in this right. match. So it seems unnatural that that's how he's choosing to attack his opponent. A head scissors from Conan comes before a couple other fancy spinning lucha style arm drags. <laughs> Conan drop kicks Psychosis in the knee and hits a huge DDT. I thought the DDT looked great. Back on their feet, Psychosis is backed into a corner, so he climbs to the top and sends Conan to the outside with a missile drop kick. This sucked because Conan's got him backed into the corner, so like Psychosis turns around and climbs up, but it takes him a good couple seconds, and Conan just takes a few steps back and waits for him to jump into him. Yeah. He know? does that he does that a lot when other guys are setting up the top rope spots. He'll just like stand there and look at him <laughs> instead of like stumbling around or whatever. He then launches himself over the top rope with a huge tope to the floor. Conan sells uh being the victim of this tope less than Psychosis does and gets up first and rolls <laughs> Psychosis back into the ring. He then pl- places Psychosis up on the top rope like facing away from the ring and then stands on the second rope so he can German suplex him, like, backwards uh, into the ring. But Psychosis flips all the way around. So yeah. rather than land on his back, he lands on his front. It's a very cool-looking spot. What would you guys think of that? No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. That's all I wanted to hear. 
Conan locks in uh, his like crazy submission finisher called Ziploc. the Ziplock, which basically looks like tying a guy in a pretzel and then standing there flexing until he taps out. I It's silly, but I kind of like it. I like the fact that he's standing there flexing while the other guy is writhing in pain. It's a cool-looking move. It takes a while to set it up, but it's cool-looking yeah. once it's going. Uh, I fucking hate this move. Really? Why is that? The Ziploc. It's like the most emasculating move you would have to submit to. <laughs> yeah. And not, not only that, I, 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 I just can't, even when I was a kid and now, I can't be convinced that guy can't get his hands out of the Ziploc. It look it just it looks goofy. It doesn't look like anything you would submit to, and all it does is it makes the other guy look terrible, because he flexes and then he just after flexing he just stands there and just waits for him to submit. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean like, I did I did really like the the German suplex. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. The ziplock no, I I I saw it once. I don't need to see it again. I guess despite me liking the move, y- what you said kind of echoes how I feel about the match. This match only makes Conan look good. Yeah. Uh, Meltzer says that it was supposed to go much longer, and all of a sudden they got told they had to go home, so that might be... It might be that Psychosis' stuff was just what got cut. Mm-hmm. But this definitely was like, hey, here's Conan, he's great, and this other brand new guy, he gets beat by Conan. Yeah. You know, like, there certainly is a way to do that match and make Psychosis come out looking great as well. And the best move Psychosis hits, Conan gets up and throws him in the ring right after <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Conan has, like, no ring psychology. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No. And what? he never in this match, he doesn't seem in danger of losing for a second. And not, not only that, when when he should be in peril, he doesn't even, like, know how to act in peril. Yeah, Conan, um, I, I honestly, I just don't care for him that much. Um, I don't think he's a great wrestler. I mean, this is, a, I think, one of the better matches he has, and he's got some good matches with Ric Flair, I think, down the road, too. But um, I don't know, like the the thing Dave, Flair, you were saying. Flair, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Flair brings that up on his uh, podcast all the time. All like, the time. As an example of the bullshit WCW is like, they asked me to lose that Mexican guy. What yeah. was his name? Yeah. He brings it up all the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and like... um something Dave you were saying too about him not understanding psychology like I read a quote a quote from him once that said like if you want to tell a story write a book I prefer <laughs> short explosive matches Jeez. so and, and and this style it just doesn't suit him well like the no. the really the fast give and take and all that especially because I know he has asthma that's oh, why he can't have really fast paced matches yeah I didn't know that yeah I mean and all the off the top rope stuff doesn't make sense when he's bigger and more muscular than the other guy too and I understand them trying to um, show what this kind of style is, but like Eddie Guerrero, I think already did it and did it way better. I understand it being a, a, a showcase match for him, but I I don't think it came across very well. I do think he has a very impressive look. Uh, my only exposure to Conan prior to this was as like the pudgy guy with a cane on Lucha Underground, who like yeah. you know he. <laughs> So to see that he was like quite ripped, yeah, uh, yeah, he looks great. So so that was interesting. Um, but ultimately, I I can't say that I was super impressed by Conan. We now go back to the chapel, and it's finally time for the wedding. Hooray! So let's uh, go to the audio clip. Again, thank you, Tony and Bobby. We are back at the White Chapel downtown Las Vegas. Uh, apparently, Sister Sherry has found a. Uh, 
a place to get dressed, a little cramped quarters. Right. I don't think that's the first time she's been in the back seat of a car, Colonel. Oh, uh, but what a statement to be making. Listen here, Gene. Listen, you know I'm a wealthy man. You know you give me that $30, you're sure to get it back. You're not going to get I the 30 bucks from me. I need the buck. Come on, work no, somebody else out with that. I'll tell you what, the... You look beautiful Colonel's in there. Listen, is that your purse over there? In the you wouldn't mind reaching in there and uh, letting me have $30 Sherry, out of there, would you? Sherry. I've, I've known you for a long time. I would be honored to walk you down the aisle. Well, in this oh, case, not a drive. So what about it? You don't want me to you want to give me away? Yes, could I? <laughs> Look at that smile on her face. Isn't that something? <laughs> I do declare, ladies and gentlemen, well, get ready. Cinch them up. Because when we come back, the wedding we've all been waiting for between Colonel Parker and Sister Sherry. Here at the Clash of the Champions on TBS. Don't go away. Call the WCW hotline now, 1-900-909-9900. For the latest wrestling news, most of it extremely confidential, by the way, make your call right now. This is your inside connection to the wrestling world. Get updated info you can't get anywhere else. Plus, play WCW trivia for prizes. Call 1-900-909-9900. Calls cost $1.49 per minute. Kids, get your parents' permission. Call the hotline right now. All right, welcome back to more of the Clash of Champions here on TBS. This is the one the entire world has been waiting for. I say it is the biggest wedding in television history, and indeed it is. Sister Sherry, well, things have kind of fallen apart here a little bit, so to speak. I had uh, expected the wedding inside the little white chapel here in Las Vegas. However, because of financial reasons, uh, Colonel Parker, we're going to be going through the drive-thru. Sherry, you look radiant, my dear. And it is my pleasure to walk you down the aisle. Well, down the driveway. Sherry, I know you came into this with a little trepidation because I overheard the conversation earlier today between you and Colonel Robert Parker. Wait a minute. I haven't talked to Rob since yesterday. No, no, no. But, I mean, he, he got the call on his cellular phone earlier today. So, apparently, you, you had a conversation. I could understand being very nervous on your wedding day or night. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't talked to Rob since yesterday. Ah, probably not that big of a thing. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, I told you I was going to dance at your wedding. Hey. Hey, the disco all the Harlem heat. I mean, we have got a cast of thousands here, literally tonight. For the nuptials between yourself and your intended, here he is with that big, that big, uh, I don't know what, you, just a big smile. I was trying to, I got lost there for words, Colonel Robert Parker. And Charlotte, my dear, you look lovely. Obviously, this is not the first time for you. Maybe you can give us a little idea of what's going on here, Colonel. Listen, I'm too nervous to talk right now. Let my bride come. What are you doing? Back off there, you crowding us a little. Come in here, darling. Oh, here, there's a tear in Buck's eye. Uh, Buck, Buck's eye. Go ahead. Buck's Start heart. the ceremony here. Start the ceremony. I've waited and waited and waited. Why don't you back off? Give us a little room. You're crowding us there. All right. Uh, both of you are either sh uh, shivering or you're very, very nervous. I'm so nervous. My shoes are about to come off. All right. Uh, Charlotte, I know this isn't the first time, but perhaps you can give us a little idea what's going to be taking place here. This is the wedding, gentlemen and ladies. Here we go. We're gathered here at the Little White Chapel drive-up window in Las Vegas, Nevada to, to join together in marriage Colonel Robert Andy Parker and Sister Sherry Martell. Be there anyone here that objects to this marriage, 
Let them now speak or forever hold their peace. Okay, well, I thank you. I don't think anybody is going to object to this. Matter of fact, this is a marriage made in heaven as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Go ahead, honey. Colonel Parker, Andy, uh, C Colonel Robert P Andy Parker, excuse me, will you take Sister Sherry Martell for of your wife? Oh, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Hey, hey, what the? What is this? Get out of here. My goodness, it's Medusa. She came right out of Colonel Parker's trailer. Why is she You know, oh my goodness, she came to Nitro and said this is going to be where the big girls played, too. And we've got two ladies going out of here on her wedding night. So there you go. It turns out that Colonel Robert Parker's little fried pie on the phone earlier was not Sherry. It was Medusa. And she shows up and beats Sherry uh, because this is where the big girls play. And apparently the only reason that women can ever fight each other right. is over a man. Because mm -hmm. bitches be crazy. <laughs> Medusa went from like one of the more iconic segments in nitro history to colonel robert parker's side piece yeah she's she's yeah she's the second choice of a man in his like mid 70s with a gross gigged up forehead yeah it's fucking stupid it's such a shitty way of reducing that character like mm -hmm. very quickly or like know. reducer Ooh, god <laughs> yes. you're off the show <laughs> No, more shows and jokes like that. <laughs> Some things to call out here are when she's like when Sherry is walking down the aisle or more accurately through the parking lot. Yes. That someone you never actually see anyone singing. So I assume it's like the crew members are like <laughs> half heartedly kind of humming. Here comes the bride. Uh, Dick Slater is crying, which is hilarious. That's yeah. good. They get a close up of that. Uh the thing that's funniest to me, though, is that the the chapel employee, who I don't think is an actor, I think they're just a person who really works at the wedding chapel, mm -hmm. she can't fucking get the names right, and Mean Gene is standing there outside this wedding chapel with this, like, civilian who keeps fucking up her lines, and Sherry's wasted, and he keeps breaking, uh, and, like, when he does it, he does this thing, and, and if you've ever watched, like, Mean Gene outtakes, you see that he'll just do this all the time in WWF, he covers his face with his hand when he's breaking. Mm -hmm. And if you watch this segment, he's doing it constantly <laughs> because everything about this situation is so absurd. Yeah. And Mean Gene has, like, no ability to keep himself from corpsing all the time. <laughs> so he is just laughing throughout the segment. Uh, but overall, yeah, this is terrible. What a shitty way to treat your women. Uh, and we mentioned way back in, uh, well, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but in Medusa's debut episode... Her, like, original big feud was over the women's title in AWA with Sherry Martell. So, like, these are two women that know each other that maybe can have a good match. Sherry doesn't participate in the ring very often mm -hmm. since she became, like, more of a manager. Uh, since she became more of a manager. But, like, they could have probably had some good matches. This just... It sucks. I'm really... I was really disappointed to see Medusa come out here. After a commercial, Michael Buffer is in the ring as it's finally time for our main event. Finally. 
Uh, I think we'll talk about Michael Buffer and how much money he fucking made off the suckers <laughs> in WCW another time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because it's a pretty funny story and, and it has a lot to do with It's like very illustrative of some of the problems with WCW as an organization. Right. Out first is Flair and the Giant, and going back to uh, music, they come out to the Dungeon of Doom song. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> instead of, uh, like, Flair's got the most, like, well, one of the most iconic themes in wrestling, mm-hmm. certainly in WCW. Right. Uh, and yet they come out to, and I love the Dungeon's theme, I actually do, but it doesn't suit the character of Flair. If anything, they should have come out separately, but maybe the show's running long, I don't know. They're accompanied by Jimmy Hart, who, uh, for some reason in his introduction, Buffer refers to him as Gentleman Jimmy Hart, (laughs) which is really weird. (laughs) Buffer's uh, introduction of the giant includes the line, he defined death at Halloween Havoc. Nice. Which I thought was really interesting since, like, beginning the night after Halloween Havoc, they've essentially pretended that that did not happen. Yeah. Like, it's almost like instantly they realize how stupid it was. Mm-hmm. They've never referred to it. They've never shown a replay of him getting knocked off the building. Right. Uh, but Buffer just openly is like, yeah, remember when he defied death a few <laughs> months ago? That's like an all-time great ring, ring introduction. <laughs> it, it really is. He defied death at Halloween. I know, isn't that awesome? <laughs> One thing I love is uh, in the background, there's like a shot of the giant's face. But in the background, you see a kid in the crowd who is so scared to be like even 40 feet away from the giant yeah and you see like that kind of thing always reminds me of you know we can pick uh we can nitpick and all that stuff and and i you know i have no problem doing that but you have to occasionally just appreciate like a kid in the crowd who is looking at a guy over seven feet tall and just shitting his pants you know (laughs) like that's what it's all about right here it's all about shitting your pants (laughs) it's all about children shitting themselves (laughs) American-made plays, uh, plays, and there is another uh, definite mixed reaction for the Mega Powers coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come out with all the women that Macho had last night, including woman, uh, Linda Hogan, Deborah McMichael, etc. No. All the women Macho Man had last night? Oh, <laughs> oh baby. <laughs> they, they were all on Nitro. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, Pomp and Circumstance plays, and the Mega Powers beckon out Miss Elizabeth. Elizabeth Ann Hewlett is the former Mrs. Elizabeth Poffo. She married Randy Poffo, a.k.a. Randy Savage, in 1984, a year before he joined the World Wrestling Federation. One of his first uh, WWF storylines was uh, all the heel managers in WWF were trying to woo him to be their client, but eventually he announced that he had settled on his manager and introduced the new character of Elizabeth. Her role was as the beautiful and mistreated foil to the violent and paranoid macho man, a role that unfortunately was reflected in her real life, as Randy was an incredibly jealous husband who flew off the handle if she so much as looked at another wrestler or if one looked at her. He would also sometimes keep her locked in their dressing room or in their home uh, when he left to ensure her fidelity. In storylines, she was at the heart of the breakup between Hogan and Savage back uh, in their run as the Mega Powers in the fantastic lead-up to WrestleMania V, one of my absolute favorite storylines of all time. Not that it's really going out on a limb to say something like that. But, <laughs> uh, she was later discarded by Randy in, fa- in storyline terms in favor of Sensational Sherry when he became the villainous Macho King until they had their joyous reunion in one of wrestling's greatest moments after Macho lost the retirement match to Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. 
The retirement was short-lived as their kayfabe wedding reception at SummerSlam 91 was ruined by a devious attack from Jake the Snake Roberts and The Undertaker. And her last angle, <laughs> that that is what brought Randy out of retirement. God, I love wrestling. <laughs> That's such a goofy tandem. The Undertaker comes out during a wedding. <laughs> her last angle in the WWF would come in 1992 in the lead-up to WrestleMania 8, when then-WWF champion Ric Flair claimed to have photographic proof that he had a sexual relationship with her prior to her relationship with the Macho Man. Shortly after this storyline, she would depart the WWF and divorce Randy, a split that Randy acknowledged in a message to fans in WWF magazine, a rare shoot statement on a wrestler's personal life that was that just really wasn't done during that period. So apparently uh, it was actually Macho Man and Hogan who convinced Elizabeth to make this return. They thought that there was money to be made, uh, especially since they've been on and off again sort of retelling the mega powers exploding right like the macho man's won the championship they've sowed some seeds of discord between the two of them Mm -hmm. really elizabeth is the last thing missing to just full do the thing again uh so they've sort of been mentioning the secret weapon for a while speculation in the dirt sheets and on the internet has included names like jake roberts the ultimate warrior your, your big free agents. Uh, so Elizabeth is certainly an interesting announcement. Um, I don't love the idea of spending too much time uh, preoccupied on the show with the looks of women involved in wrestling. Like, I, But... but <laughs> I have a note on this, too. But, <laughs> but Elizabeth, don't get me wrong. She's a pretty woman. She looks like your friend's attractive mom. Like, she's she's not a bad-looking woman. It's not like she's there's I. But she's her her persona is the most beautiful woman in the world, mm-hmm. and she just looks like an attractive woman you would see any day of the week. Unf- I don't mean to be rude, but there's nothing special to her looks at this point in her life. In my opinion, what do you guys think? I totally disagree. I thought she looked fantastic. Really? Yeah. And because growing up, I mean, I was I was four when WrestleMania five sure. happened. Yeah. So I grew up just having the hugest crush on her. Yeah. And I I was like eleven or ten when this came when this show happened. So I don't know. I I thought she looked absolutely amazing, especially because she was probably about forty at the time or not thereabouts. Not, not to be more reductive or sexist or just awful, but everything I just said is kind of from the neck up i thought her body looked amazing uh especially like you said given her age yeah uh dave where do you come down i guess you're our you're our tie breaking <laughs> i i thought that she looked great and i and as 12 year old dave i thought that she looked phenomenal <laughs> yeah i will say it at whatever age i was if you were yeah. 12 i would have been 13 so yeah i probably would have had a big old boner for miss elizabeth <laughs> Don't Jesus. get me wrong. More accurately, a tiny little boner <laughs> for Miss Elizabeth. Well, see, for me, she always seemed really innocent, which yeah. is, like, why I yeah. I didn't think she, well, I guess some of the, her future storylines I don't think make very much sense because um, I don't like when she kind of, like, hooches it up a little bit, you know? Yeah, but, I know. Um, I've seen a little bit of that. Yeah, see, I think she's, like, more, like, classically beautiful, like an old, like, Hollywood sort of starlet from Golden Age Hollywood than, hmm. than like, she's hot, you know, like, okay. sunny. You know. Sure, sure. I thought because it's a very it's a big departure as far as her appearance is concerned because she usually was like 
so restrained as far as like like full sleeves. And yeah, like she's got a lot of cleavage on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and blonde hair or blondish hair now. But I mean, with all that said, no matter what I felt that she looked like, I never ever thought that Miss Elizabeth had like any function near a wrestling ring. Oh God, yeah. Except yes, she was gr- she was great when Macho Man is a heel. And she's the foil for him, like Tim was saying. But, like, I heard she came in making, like, high six figure, like, $300,000 a year or something like that. And I just don't understand where that money is in 96. She, I mean, the the best use for her would have been the WrestleMania 3 match uh, with Steamboat and Savage and George the Animal Seal chasing her around and distracting Macho Man throughout the match. Like... Her as the beautiful woman in peril is the one use for her. Mm. Her as a secret weapon makes yeah. no sense. Especially since once they get to the ring, they don't show her at all. Yeah. Like she, there isn't a single close up on her and they don't mention her whatsoever. She's never won Macho Man a match. That was never even her function. Yeah. That was never the point of Miss Elizabeth. Yeah. The one the one thing I just wanted to comment on because you mentioned it and just when you mentioned it, I just kinda got like goosebumps about it is that WrestleMania seven yeah moment when when Sherry is like kicking Savage when he's down and she f- gets fed up and she like runs the ring and then they like embrace and like and Savage is like it's basically my career is over but the, I got I got like the love of my life back. Yeah. Oh God that whole thing that's plays one out. of all time best wrestling moments. Yeah and that's that shows like it, as long as like there's like this investment with Miss Elizabeth and one of the wrestlers because she's not a wrestler, yeah. she's not really much of a manager. She has to have an investment directly with someone. Right. So as a secret weapon, no, no, it doesn't doesn't work at all. Doesn't add up. It's a secret ratings weapon, but yeah. like, the yeah, <laughs> do you think that even had a ratings impact though? Well, I guess we'll we'll talk about that when we get to the end Fair of our enough. show. Okay. We go to a commercial. And when we come back, we learn that during the break, uh, Ric Flair was trying to piss off Kevin Green by saying that the Cowboys were going to beat the Steelers come Sunday. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> really going on a limb there, don't every, you, boy? Every time you do that, by the way, I have to fix the audio because it <laughs> tops. <laughs> I have to like manually make you much quieter. Is, is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> the, the bell rings and uh, Macho and Flair start off, but Flair stalls by mocking Green again. By doing like a three-point stance into a strut, which I thought was pretty <laughs> funny. Green uh, comes in the ring and he's taking his shirt off. He's still wearing like a tank top, but he's got some good guns. He's, he looks tough. Well, he then he's an actual professional athlete. He's yeah. probably gonna look pretty good. He gets down in a three-point stance, like he's gonna charge at Flair, <laughs> which would make him a terrible secret weapon because his team right. would get disqualified within like three seconds of the bell ringing. But the Nature Boy wants none of it, and he powders to the outside. He then gets on the mic and says that he doesn't want to be blamed for hurting Green and causing him to miss the Super Bowl, <laughs> which I thought was great healing it up. Like, yeah. that's that's funny. Flair and Savage finally lock up. Savage eats a chop and then hits a back body drop and a couple of clotheslines. Uh, he then whips Flair into the corner for the Flair bump over the top turnbuckle. Uh, in this occasion, not only does he go over the top turnbuckle, he goes right into the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that then sends him over into Hogan's big boot on the ring apron. Once back in the ring, Flair baits Savage into the corner and then chops him. The giant clubs Randy on the back when Randy gets uh, over in the heel corner. Savage then blocks a Flair hip toss and backslides Flair, uh, just yes. for Dave, into a two count. 
Savage then starts dominating the match with some punches, and he holds Flair over in the face corner so that Hogan can punch him too. <laughs> Flair has finally had enough of this, and he tags in the giant. Uh, Hogan then not so subtly starts working the crowd into demanding that he get tagged in to face yeah. the giant. He's doing like this thing where like the crowd, some people are cheering, and he starts looking at the crowd like, who, who, me? Yeah, whipping his head around he, and stuff. Yeah, you want little old me <laughs> in the match? He's such a dick. <laughs> He's like... What did you say? I didn't say anything. You said you want me in the match? <laughs> no, I didn't say anything. I mean, it is effective. The crowd does start cheering for him. He's so. a pro. Yep. He knows, he knows how to do Hulkamania. Uh, they lock up, and the giant overpowers Hogan into the corner a few times. He just kind of shoves him into the corner to show off his power. Hogan then tries a shoulder block on the giant, but the giant's just too big, and Hogan goes down. But the shoulder block is so soft and gentle that a mosquito could have been between their two bodies and survived the collision between the two of them. Hogan then rakes the eyes and tries and fails to body slam the giant. It's like, of course you're not going to body slam. It's just silly. Yeah. Instead, the giant slams Hogan and then kicks him around. And then for some reason... The giant wanders around aimlessly for like 45 seconds. <laughs> he he literally does two laps of Hogan. He just walks around his body very slowly, doing nothing forever, before finally headbut uh, headbutting Hulk in the balls. <laughs> like all that lead up just so he can headbutt him in the balls. <laughs> giant then delivers a backbreaker and a tries to get a running elbow drop, but Hogan moves. Uh, and Hogan, of course, then starts, like, hulking up. He finally does body slam the giant, and I will give him that his body slam of the giant here, very impressive. Uh, his one of Andre, like, you can always see that it is really a strain, as even as strong as Hogan is, but this one, he gets the giant all the way up and delivers a very nice body slam. And a big big part of that is probably because the giant is in phenomenal shape That's here, a good point. and Andre's, like barely alive yeah. at that point yeah he's probably helping a lot more than andre was yeah to. And i actually i really like the hogan and giant exchange here because yeah. um it, you kind of remember that um at in 96 the giant's really the only guy in the roster that can really dwarf hogan and sure. pick him up and give him backbreakers and hogan will actually sell for him because you feel like he's kind of invested in the giant as a future opponent and he's yeah he's the only guy who it ever seems like might beat hogan yeah uh, because Hogan might let that happen, you right. know. Hogan's body slam is right after he suffered that backbreaker, so he goes down clutching his back in a rare moment of psychology <laughs> and selling from Hulk Hogan. Like, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's like Rob Van Dam holding his gut after he five-stars a guy but won't yeah. sell the D. <laughs> Flair tags in and delivers a delayed vertical suplex, which I don't remember anyone doing to Hogan before. Flair does it all the time. To Hogan? Yeah, and Hogan okay. always just stands up like he does here. Yeah, Hogan no-sells it, of course, and pops right back to his feet behind Flair's back. Hogan then takes over uh, with just kind of some basic punch-and-kick offense. Uh, that lasts for a while until, until Flair pokes him in the eye when Jimmy Hart uh, gets up on the apron. That allows the Giant to pull Hogan out to the floor and sort of uh, gently push him into the guardrail. <laughs> he, like... Picks him up to bear hug him, yeah. and I don't think he can really figure out how to throw him onto the guardrail, so he like puts him down, just kind of <laughs> gently pushes him over there. He then puts him back in the ring, uh, but Hogan just starts no-selling some chops. <laughs> so like Hogan just got beat up on the outside, shoved into a guardrail, chopped. He's fine. No-selling. Yep. Uh, Flair goes up to the top no, rope. No matter what happens, <laughs> no matter what circumstance it is, the, the chops just don't do anything. They just make him angry. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Flair goes up to the top and hits a corkscrew moonsault. <laughs> Just kidding. He gets thrown off by Hogan. Oh. <laughs> Hogan tags in Savage, who nails the flying double axe handle on Flair and goes up and follows through with the macho elbow. Uh, Hogan clears Giant from the ring by clotheslining him over the top rope. And it looks great. It does look pretty good. Yeah. Jimmy Hart is with the ref again, though, so he can't count the three on Flair. Savage grabs and nails Jimmy, uh, but this allows Flair to pull out the infamous knucks, yeah. tape knuckles, the brass knuckles that have tape on them for some reason. The, the and not because they're just made of tape and nothing else. <laughs> right. The weird white <laughs> object of death. Uh, he pulls him out of his trunks. Savage goes over and picks Flair up the mat, and Flair drills him with the, the foreign object. Shivani doesn't pick up on the foreign object or the punch until, like, after the one, two, three. Uh, so Flair nails him, gets the pin, and only afterward is Shivani like, he hit him with something! <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's another thing where clearly the quality of the match was um, negatively affected by the fact that Shivani didn't know what the ending was. Yes, absolutely. Afterward, Zodiac and Pillman rush down uh, to beat up Hogan, but Kevin Green, like, sort of wrangles them into the ring he clearly doesn't want to get too physically involved mm-hmm. or do anything that could risk injury, so he just sort of sidesteps them like they're charging bulls and just sort of lets their momentum carry them into the ring. Yeah. Uh, Hogan grabs them both by the head, and Green joins them in the ring, and they take turns throwing these guys over the top rope. Again, Green's involvement is really minimal, just kind of standing by and miming throwing, you know? Something I wanted to mention at this point, and this has happened on previous Nitros at the very end, that Brian Pillman comes in and he he pretty much just breaks the loose cannon character to do like the to look like a dope who gets beat up by the baby faces. Yeah, like um when you know there was that one moment when Hogan had all four of the horsemen begging. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And there's been a couple other times where Pillman's been like the guy to rush in, and he just go- goes in and does like the pretty typical like selling for Hogan, and it's it it feels out of character that he's like not doing any antics or like trying really really hard yeah like why was it pillman here instead of arn anderson who's right. closer to rick flair i don't know it just or just another dungeon guy you know it's yeah also they've been setting up that zodiac is like sort of turning face and also not the wanting secret to hurt, weapon not wanting to hurt hogan but I guess that's gone or partially gone. Who knows at this point? Well, I mean, it's gone for like a moment, and then doesn't he try to like keep the giant out of the ring at the end of the show? No, that was last night. Was it last night? Yeah. Okay. Hurt. <laughs> Friend. Friend. <laughs> <laughs> so the Mega Powers have lost. Savage is on the ground. Elizabeth has done absolutely nothing, <laughs> but she comes in the ring, and Savage gets up, and she raises his arm. And their music plays like they've accomplished something. Yay. They've accomplished nothing. I, I don't get why they're allowed to celebrate at this point. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, it is pretty great, though, when um, uh, Zodiac and Brian Pillman rush ring and Hogan and Kevin Green are beating him up. Ric Flair's music's playing the whole time. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, as the show goes off the air, Bobby resurrects a bit that's been dead since like the fourth episode of nitro Uh where he claims that something's going on in the back (laughs) and before i've always thought that there was some kind of miscommunication or like uh they thought they had more time than they did Mm -hmm. but the way he does it here it finally dawned on me that he's been doing it as a troll job the whole time (laughs) he knew exactly what he was doing i thought it was like supposed to be a cliffhanger kind of thing no, I think he's just fucking around. I think he's yeah. just being Bobby. The first time I remember him doing that, he did it um, on 
was it like the this Tuesday in Texas or something? Or no, a Saturday night's main event in '92, um, when it was going to be Savage and Warrior against Razor Ramon and Ric Flair, and um, Bobby Heenan breaks the story right before the end of the show that the Ultimate Warrior is out for the match at Survivor Series. Oh wow! Yeah, so every time he does this little thing that I notice he did it here too. I, I always figured they followed up on it, but I guess maybe no, he, they don't. He would be he did it all the time in like the first five or six episodes of Nitro, mm-hmm. like going into commercial breaks or at the end of Nitros, and it never came to anything. Yeah. And it was this finally happening this way where I was like, Oh my god, he's been working me. He's just <laughs> been he's just been doing it to like <clears throat> m- get a reaction out of people. Yeah. So why did the show end this way? Well, Ric Flair has been unhappy with the direction of his character for some time. Uh, he wrote in his book in reference to winning his 12th championship uh, back at Starcade due to the interference of Jimmy Hart, Arn Anderson, and Brian Pillman. Right. <laughs> he said, when three men have to help, they win the match, not you. That's not like beating Harley Race one-on-one for the championship. That's absurd. I remember going to the back where guys like Diamond Dallas Page and Johnny B. Bad congratulated me. Oh, you're back, you're back. And I was thinking to myself, guys, I'm so over this. It was such bullshit. So that gives you an idea of his mentality at the time. So uh, then he loses the belt right back to to Savage, Mm -hmm. and he's just getting more and more angry. And according to the Wrestling Observer, he finally threatened to quit if the original booking, which had him being leg-dropped and pinned by Hogan, of course, because Giant (laughs) isn't going to take the loss, uh, he threatened to quit if that wasn't changed. Interestingly, the last time that Flair put his foot down was in kind of a similar situation uh, when he got tired of losing to Hogan and Savage at the end of 94, and early 95. So he eventually booked himself because he was part of the booking team at the time. He was nominally the head booker, but he insists that he was just a member of a team. Uh, he booked himself to beat Savage at the 95 Great American Bash by just saying, I'm winning, take it or leave it. And Savage went along with it. Uh, but Flair claims that that's what got him kicked off the creative team and put in Sullivan as the guy who's in charge of, of creative from that point f- going forward. Uh, before we talk about anything else, what did you guys think of the main event as a as a match or as a, as a spectacle at the very least? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I I think as you just said, it was like a spectacle. Like everything leading up was th- was the was the match itself. You yeah. Know? The, uh, it it was just pretty much you know run of the mill. I mean, these are guys that face each other countless times on Nitro, and like the night before, so. <laughs> I I didn't get any, I didn't really get anything new from it. I mean, it's adding the giant. It's like it's just good for like the giant to be like actually getting chances to be in the ring right. and like get some experience because after his match with uh, Hogan, they barely have him wrestle at all when he should be having matches like every every night. Yeah, and he sometimes right. doesn't doesn't even appear on the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you said, it was pretty much everything you expect. The wrestling wasn't great, but there also was no major botches, which I guess, right. you know, given that, uh, you know, the giant who's so green, you know, he didn't really fuck anything up, and some of the stuff he did looked real good. Mm-hmm. Um, like John pointed out correctly, you know, he's probably more to credit than Hogan for how good that body slam looked. So, um, you know, whatever, two stars, you know, kind of thing. Like, it was there, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's no real reason to care about this match, though. Like, right. I'm sure when I was 10, you know, because Hulk Hogan was wrestling, I wanted to see it. But, like, I, I until I watched the show today, I didn't even remember this match ever happened before. 
and I think Nitro's already getting into that pattern where they have the same four guys main eventing every single week. Sure. And they're never accomplishing anything by doing the match. And this match, too, like you said, it's like nine minutes long or something like that, including a lot of stalling early on. Right. Flair, so, uh, yeah. I, and the night before, you know, we had Flair and Savage for the title. We got the big title change. Now they've made it into a tag team match, and it's not for anything. Yeah. I mean, as a viewer of Nitro the night before, what's my motivation? What to Yeah, watch they should have flipped those two matches around. They're really hoping that your motivation is Elizabeth, at least if nothing or, else. Or the wedding. Yeah, or the wedding. <laughs> I mean, we joke, but Redding, like I said, weddings pop ratings. People yeah. were tuning in to see that. Yeah, they really should have done this for the Nitro main event and then had Flair and Savage for the main event here for the title, especially if you're having Flair cheat to beat Savage. That would actually probably get extra people to watch the show, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, I the booking between what went on Nitro and what went on here is very confusing to me. Right. Um, but it is what it is, I, I guess. Mean, it's like it is the Macho Man would say. <laughs> I live is. by it is, is what it, I don't even remember. What the fuck, how does he say it? Does he just say it is what it is? Yeah. Okay. Or, or what it is what is what it is. What it is. is. Yeah. I knew, I knew I was missing something. What it is is what it is. Yeah. Following the televised portion of the evening, One Man Gang took on Disco Inferno in a dark match. Uh, WCB loves having dark matches after their shows, I've noticed. I don't really know why. Yeah. Um, WWF did this, too, um, especially in your houses. They would always have a pre-show dark match and a post-show dark match with their more main event guys that didn't otherwise make the card. It's also funny that they realize that to the audience at home, they can't acknowledge that Disco Inferno is in two places at once. But apparently to the crowd there, it's fine to just have him at the wedding and then two minutes later in the arena, even though that's impossible. Yeah. Who gives a shit, right? <laughs> it's like uh, Kensuke Sasaki refusing to defend the U.S. title in America, but then defending it in America once Starcade went off the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, reports from the arena claim that up to 75% of the crowd walked out during <laughs> One Man Gang versus Disco Inferno. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, the rating for the show was a 4.5, which is a huge success. Yikes. On a Tuesday. Well, yeah. I mean, since it is a Tuesday, there's nothing else to watch. You know, it actually uh, wasn't just completely a, a random Tuesday. It was a Tuesday uh, where there were apt to be a lot of eyes on cable. Uh, can you think of anything, and I don't blame you if, if you can't, but uh, can you think of anything that happens every January on a Tuesday that would drive people to watch cable television? Primaries? That's on the right track. Uh, State of the Union? The State of the Union address. Okay, was, there uh, you go. William Jefferson Clinton had his, uh, I think Who? it would be like his <laughs> seventh or eighth, either his, uh, probably his last, because 96 would be uh, when... Bush won, right? No, that's two thousand. No, that's two thousand. Yeah, so oh, this so this be would be right as he right after he won re-election in November. So this is kind of a triumphant State of the Union, an F you to the Republicans that wanted uh, to drive him out with the sexual blah 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 shit. Oh yeah. Uh, although that might have been in a second term. Anyway, we're not an American history podcast. The point is, <laughs> it was the State of the Union tonight, uh, so a lot of people were watching that, but it also drove a lot of people, you know, because that simulcast on all the networks. So cable, everything on cable went up like. 30-year reruns of I Love Lucy had, like, record numbers, you know, compared to what they normally get. So uh, that certainly is a, a part of what contributed to The Clash's success. So it's just the idea that people will have their TVs on because of this other thing that's happening, and they'll just naturally spread out to these other programs Well, I on? think the idea is it's America, and everyone always has their TVs on, 
and a lot of people aren't interested in watching the president talk. Okay, you know, fair I think enough. So, it, so it's so it's a lot. So it's of repelling the audience, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's okay. So okay. It's a lot of people that tune in for the State of the Union, and then they realize it's the State of the Union address, and that it's really boring and pro- probably just like full of just all these like grandiose promises and stuff like that. Where it's like after a while, you you get uh, like in the first five minutes what they're gonna say. It's such a, a waste of time. It definitely just seems like, uh, hey, Terrace, here we are. We're all in one room, you know. <laughs> this is the address. It's always been this address <laughs> on this day. <laughs> Some of the earlier clashes, which, keep in mind, had a lot less cable channels when they were on, uh, did higher numbers. But this is very good for the recent clashes. It matches the August 94 clash, which featured the very first ever televised match between Flair and Hogan. Okay. Uh, so this is considered a, a huge success. So, John, you asked earlier, you know, was Elizabeth a ratings draw? I would say yes, uh, yeah. apparently. Um, you know, because I don't know. Really, the things that were sold the show the most were the wedding and f- in and uh, Elizabeth in terms of what was promoted. And Elizabeth, you could argue, was promoted less because they only had literally a day that they promoted her. It, it was just announced yesterday she'd be on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever it was, people turned out in droves to watch it. It was, you know, the highest rated Nitro we've had to this point. Uh, has been a 3.5. Yeah. And Raw has never been higher than that either. So that's the highest rated show we've had, and this is a full point higher. So I think Bischoff and, and everybody uh, would were very happy with the way this turned out. With all that being said, let's start with you, Dave. What was your match of the night? Oh, boy. Um, so many options. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sting and Luger versus the Blue Bloods. Okay. Um, as far as when you consider both expectations and and what you actually received, it fulfilled uh, what that good, huh? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. Like there 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 really weren't there was not many matches that stood out as like being really good. Uh, Brian Pillman versus Eddie Guerrero is memorable, but it wasn't a good match. Sure. Um, as we talked about, Dean Malenko and and Alex Wright just had like a little bit of off timing, so. I would say, consider. I, I would say, like as far as the competitors, like pulling off th- the best match you could, can expect. I would say that tag match. All right, John. What was your match of the night? I'm going Nasty Boys and Public Enemy. Um, I actually, for some of the same reasons Dave liked the other tag team match, because when I see those two teams on a card. Um, I just hope it's not really long and boring, and this one was mostly short, and it wasn't boring or anything like that. And um, I think these two guys, as far as like talking about, or these two teams talking about spectacle and things like that, they are actually a pretty good match for each other because they have similar styles, and I thought that came across pretty well. I am actually going to agree with you, John. Uh, I never would have believed reading the card ahead of time that my match of the night would have been Public Enemy Nasty Boys, but as I said earlier, um, the simple fact is. Everything they set out to do in the match, they did well. Did they set out to do a bunch of, you know, crazy technical spots? No, but that's not why you watch a Nasty Boys Public Enemy match. Um, not why you watch one. <laughs> sure. Sure. Someone's probably out there like, where are the hammer locks? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I thought it was great. I um, And part of it definitely is that there's not a lot to choose from on the show. I'm not going to make it. This is not a great. It's not like go to the network right now everybody and turn on this match it's just of the options available i felt it clearly was the best choice 
Uh, John, let's start with you for MVP. Who came out smelling like a rose? I'm going Jerry Sags for the uh, table over the top rope to the face of Johnny Grunge. <laughs> Self-explanatory. I like it. <laughs> Dave, who's your MVP? Uh, my MVP was Bobby Heenan uh, for for how awful his reaction could have been sure. to Brian Pillman. I, th- I thought he was very... He your MVP was, is a guy who said fuck on live television. Well, <laughs> Twice. Also, that's a good reason to both. It's <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> I mean, how many other times on Nitro you could hear someone say fuck? Especially because, yeah, when we watched this, we were like kids who that would have been like the most exciting thing we'd seen all week was a guy said fuck on TV. Yeah. And, yeah. and also, I think considering that he was like ready to walk out, when he came back, I felt that he did a very good job not only explaining himself, but also bringing the attention back to the match. Absolutely. I agree with that. And, in fact, I was going to choose Heenan, but I felt like you would, and I wanted to add a little variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to go with a surprising choice. My MVP of the show is Kevin Green. <laughs> uh, yes. Frequently when celebrities get involved, it sucks. They seem out of place. They don't seem like they like being there or like wrestling. Uh, or if they do get involved, they're wooden and shitty. His promo was good. I liked his enthusiasm. He seemed thrilled to be there. Like, he was enjoying every minute of it. Uh, he was willing to do this five days before the fucking Super Bowl right. that he was playing in. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give mine to Kevin Green. Also, also he had uh, pretty good guns in that tank top. I was impressed. Uh, this, you know, he could he obviously didn't, but he could have had a wrestling career when this was all over. He Didn't he have, like, two matches? Yeah. Oh, he did? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Don't shit. spoil him, but yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, and for celebrities in wrestling, he's about as good as they get as far as like coming in and taking it seriously. And he had a couple of matches that, I mean, they were both pretty bad. But, yeah. I mean, <laughs> for, for having a, an old football player in them, they were pretty good. All right, so that's it. That's our show. Uh, Dave, what did you think overall of The Clash? Were, was this a... Uh, yeah, how does this stack up compared to like Nitros? Was this a good show, bad show? What'd you think? Um, I I like the pacing a lot better because it seemed to go from match to match to match, and it just um it didn't drag as much as some Nitros can feel. Sure. Um, despite it, being twice as long. Right. I, but though I mean I think the overall story is that all the interesting stuff that should have been on the Clash they want they put on Nitro yeah. the night before. Which I understand that Bischoff's like, I want to make sure that the Nitro ratings are really good. Yeah. So I'll have all the exciting stuff there. And then whoever tunes in for Clash of Champions, you know, that's a bonus. Um, I, Clash of Champions could have been a lot better if they switched it up. Um, but all things considered, I, I don't think I don't think there was a match that, like, stunk up the joint. Which yeah. Is, which is that. amazing since there's, like, eight matches and there's not a lot of, like, super talented wrestlers on yeah. the roster. So, eh, I mean, it's okay. I don't think I, I don't think I would watch it again. Yeah, average, up J- a little bit above average. Yeah. John, your thoughts overall on the show? I thought it was lousy. I mean, I don't think there was really a good match on the show. Um, it, I mean, it's memorable for the Brian Pillman and Heenan thing, and and for me, it's actually more memorable for the Ric Flair thing because I remember reading about that way back in the day. Um, but I mean, I don't know. WCW I'm sorry, which Ric Flair thing? Oh, the the incident about him like threatening to quit oh, oh, okay. um, over the finish. So you were you were a smart fan, even, yeah, even yeah, then because this was like a little bit after um, I like started using the internet probably every day. Okay, um, but um, yeah, I mean overall the show just wasn't very good, and WCW at this point is in a really bad holding pattern. 
um, without much direction and and I don't know just just nothing on the show really did it for me. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna come down. I'm a, between you guys a bit, um, but I'm a little more on John's side. Um, not that you guys are arguing, but I, I come closer to saying that this was a lousy show than than very good. I agree that the pacing was pretty good. Um, but like John said, we've really been stuck in a rut of the same people in the same spots. At least the one nice thing that's developed recently is Sting and Luger. I think pairing them as a tag team and getting them involved in that division was great because it just gave them something fresh to do. Mm -hmm. But everyone else has been doing virtually the same thing they've been doing since we started this podcast. And that's, you know, we're 23 weeks, 22 weeks into the podcast now. That's way too long. Yeah, uh, f- for for this to still be going on. Agreed. All right. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for joining us here on the show. Obviously, we don't have any raw to recap or anything like that. So, so we will see you on the 29th for our next episode of Nitro. Here, where the big boys play. Twenty years of Nitro. Introducing first, a tag team in the company of the Mouth from the South. Gentlemen, Jimmy Hart, we start with the biggest man in professional wrestling. He stands in at 73 inches tall and weighs 426 pounds. He defied death at Halloween Havoc, and he puts the fear of death upon his opponents because of his size and strength. He is the giant! 